This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Since World War II, the Army has issued each newly promoted general officer a general officer's belt, first introduced in 1944 as authorized by the Army Chief of Staff. This thick black leather belt has an 18-karat gold-plated buckle imprinted with an eagle. General officers wear the belt at their discretion. The Undersecretary of the Army is presenting Mrs. Young with a belt and a one-star general officer flag. Thank you, Undersecretary Camarillo and General Williams. Ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Renata Young. Undersecretary of the Army Camarillo, USMA Superintendent Williams, Brigadier Charles, General Charles Young Foundation board members, Foundation friends, family, Superintendent Charles Young Buffalo Soldier National Park Monuments, Mr. Stewart, Omega Psi Phi President, Dr. Marion, and guest, distinguished guest. My name is Renata Young. I am a descendant of Brigadier General Charles Young. There we go, good everything, yes. Just wanted to stop there where she uh, made the profession and the pro proclamation. So um, yesterday you were in the Nubian streets and, and that, let me just say uh, good everything. Did I say that? Yes, love all the Nubians and those that are not, love you too. Uh, and especially you, Dr. Carr, hi. Especially you, hey, Rob. I was navigating as you have there on the latest of the fly gear. Nubian. Navigate in them Nubian streets. Nubian streets. Uh, it says navigate them Nubian streets with care. With care. Yes. Keep that mask on your wrist. I keep it on my wrist. Yeah, I was out there. We've been out there this whole week. I, I saw about a dozen of our folk who were going to Kemet on Wednesday when Dr. Black was in town with Black on Black. He had packed it out. Packed it out. But yeah, I was I was out there. How are you doing this beautiful morning? I love your glorious hair. Black women's hair is the crown and glory. Uh, this is way too much information, but you know the pandemic. My my uh, hairdresser moved to the uh, to Georgia, <laughs> so I'm like, I'm leaving. <laughs> I was like, uh, wait a minute, what am I supposed to do? Uh, okay, gel, gel and a hairbrush. That was my <laughs> friend. <laughs> the last three years, my hair was a mess, so I got like eight inches cut off. I'm just like, all right, just do whatever. <sighs> Please, thank you. Oh my God! But yeah, it was it was a whole mess. But y'all know what that is. Um, but you know, head, head wraps and brushes and gel. I, do uh, and, uh, I ain't doing the lace front because I need my edges. Yeah, Oops. But, uh, no, edges are important. You know, they they frame your face. You need. Edges, you need listen, yeah. edges never went out of style. In fact, these young these young sisters out here, they the edge queens. I'm like, really? This is a this is a whole thing, huh? I just that that's baby hair. I'm I'm like I'm grown. I'm, I'm, a grown, I'm grown, so I'm not doing baby hair. But, um, you know, if you do baby hair, that's your business. Everybody do what you want to do to make you happy. Well, when you, when you see those natural hair wigs in the uh, Cairo Museum in Kemet, which, of course, you know, a lot of times since it's so, uh, it's really a, a desert climate, the, the, the Kemites would shave their heads. But they would cut their hair and then weave it, braid it, lock it. And so when you see there's a whole case on the second floor of the Egyptian Museum of human hair wigs. And when we go up there, I said, and when y'all turn this corner, look at this case. Anybody ask y'all again with Egyptians black, you just take a picture of this. And oh. then hair in those cases is your hair. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh my God, the braids, the micro twists, all of it is there. 
3,000 years old. <laughs> so should we build some ways that we got somebody else's culture here on our heads? No. I mean, the, you know what? The interesting thing. Or, or more importantly, because that's irrelevant, that we don't even control the very industry, industry that only we really propagate, right? We don't control that industry at all. You know the answer to that. One of the earliest conversations we had, you brought up uh, Annie Malone and Poro. Yes, and, right. And of course, Sarah Breedlove, the great Madam C.J. Walker, who said, they told me in a dream how to fix black women's hair. So yeah, we, we need to be controlling that. And at one time, black women controlled it. So yes, you know the answer. <laughs> that was one of the first conversations we said, he said, let's talk about let's talk about Poro. Let's talk about Annie Malone. Come on now. Yes. We know the answer to that. We can do anything we want to with our hair. That's right. Can we just spend a moment? Because Atua Asamoah, your sister, Mm. uh, struck again. Texas now has the Crown Act because this woman is out in the streets making sure that how you show up with your hair grown out of your head uh, will not uh, make you lose your job and and, uh, allow people to police your hair. Uh, She's been doing that work for the better part of a half a a decade. um, And it's so funny you say that. (laughs) Uh, of course, as you say, I is the one who introduced us, that sister from Connecticut, but her father, Kwame Bachwa Asmoa, my brother, um, is, of course, Ghanaian and Ashanti. So it's so funny. One day, Aj might show up with micro race. Next thing, she may show up and you blow from across the room and her hair will feather back. Like I said, is that a perm? She'd be ready to fight me. I ain't had a perm my hair for years. I straightened my hair. So you can't. And her thing is, yeah, however you show up at work, black people, you're supposed to be able to show up. Y'all not going to cut this boy's locks so he can wrestle. Y'all not going to fire this sister because her hair doesn't look like your hair. All of that. And that crown act, yeah, she, they've been waging battle. And she and her comrades from California, all the way back across over here to the East Coast, and then Texas. 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 Well, they, <laughs> they just impeached the attorney general, right? The Ken Paxton, his wife is in the Senate. But they got that crown act passed. Don't mess with hair now. Right. But it also shows that, you know, that may be a small thing, maybe, but it's it's a big thing. But everybody has their thing. Right. Yeah, of course. We, we don't all have to do all of the things. Just find the thing that you do. Right. You know, and we need the thing. Need I was talking with a, uh, an amazing sister the other day and she said, you know, like we all are body parts. Like I may be the neck. You may be the head, but that head ain't doing nothing without this neck. And, and when we come together, we need to know what our roles are. Am I a neck? Am I a head? Am I a hand? It's all important. Right. Am I am I an eye? You know, am I the nose? Am I the nostrils? Like it's all in my nostril hairs. All important. All yeah. important because it filters. You know, so we we just gotta find our our place. You know, and do wow. it. That you know, that's <laughs> such a powerful metaphor. Um, there's a new um, there's a new play. Any of y'all in New York? If you are in New York, I think it's it uh, opens tonight or tomorrow. I saw it in today's paper. Tori Sampson. This sister has written a play called The Land Was Made. It is a what is called a speculative account of the Black Panther Party's origins. There's the sister right there, drawing on roots of Black Panther. She grew up in a Panther household. Uh, let me see. Uh, let me see where it says the play, I think, star. Oh, yeah, the play which opens on Sunday okay. at the Vineyard Theater in Manhattan. The reason I bring it up. Is because one of, the, I guess, the narrator of the play here. I mean, we got a real write-up, long write-up in the Times. There, you see, brother playing. He was the sister from uh, uh, who plays uh, Bumpy Johnson's daughter in uh, Godfather of Harlem. She's in here. 
Yeah, so, but but she says, that the narrator comes in and says that I am the griot uh, as she comes in to narrate the history. And uh, of course, they talk about the Shakur family. Actually, there's a new book Santee Holly just wrote called American Family, The Shakurs and the Nation They Created. This just came out mm -hmm. on Tupac Afini Shakur, but more importantly, the entire, you know, we talked about Matulu Shakur uh, a couple of months ago. Some of the things but anyway i raise it because the narrator i guess opens the play or somewhere near the play opening of the play uh the narrator says i'm a griot and i winced because we should just get rid of that french word i understand it's familiar now and it's better than saying storyteller but the 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 word jolly is very important because jolly means blood and as you say to know your part of the body that you funk we need everything in our bodies to function but the blood is what literally allows our body to function. And if we think it metaphorically, we don't have a body without memory. That's why they call the memory keepers the blood. There is no body without memory. So, I mean, I just thought about that because that's going to be germane to what we're going to talk about. Every, everybody wants to be the head. You know, who wants yeah. to be the blood? Ooh, raise your hand. Well, the blood is going to be hard because, yeah, well, because you have to earn that, right? You have, you have to, to earn it. Oh, yes. I'll I was talking with Evie Zaboy uh, this week. Yes, yes, our sister. Yes, uh, and you know, we were talking about this very thing of memory and reclaiming, because you know, she changed her name since you were talking about the Shakurs. Of course, they were the Africas in, in Philly, you know. That's and right. at every stage, you know, there's an attempt to remember, come okay. into community, change the name. Evie changed her name. She had a, a, a French name, because she's from IT, her parents. Indeed. And even talking about God and religion because she was, you know, Catholic with Catholic Catholicism was forced into. And right now the, the biggest Catholics are in Africa and nope. in, in Caribbean nope. islands. It's like, it's crazy. Nope. And we don't even question or challenge anything. And there's no disrespect if you, you know, it, it, don't wince, run headlong into liberation. And that was, you know, what she said, you know, and, and she's still battling her, her folk, but this is something that once you know, you gotta you gotta do something different. So, hmm. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Once we know, it's like we were talking about last week when um, Governor Moore, Wes Moore, um, gave the commencement speech at Morehouse uh, Sunday for last, and said, you know, I know my full history, and he talked about opening. With the, the day he was inaugurated, they, he started the ritual that morning. It's what he told the assembled faculty and students and families at Morehouse. And it, it, if y'all go to uh, Morehouse, uh, Morehouse's um, YouTube channel, you can see the whole speech. And I encourage you to. He said, we started that morning at the water at Annapolis. And anybody who's been to Annapolis, if you ever go, go right to the port there. There is a museum there, African-American Museum. And right, right, uh, right off the the shore there, and it's a little port. They got little shops and things like that. And you think, oh, that's cute. And there's a statue of Alex Haley. The reason there's a statue of Alex Haley there is because that is the place that is said to have been the place where the ship that brought Kunta Kinte in mm. from Gambia came, what is now the Gambia. And Governor Moore told those young people that uh, that Sunday morning, he said, you know, we started the ritual there. And I know they were mad, but he's, I used my full history. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's not your full history, but I see what you mean. <laughs> so, and, and I understand you can't go but so far on your way to the White House. So that's fine. But 
please understand that some things, I don't know if they can be reconciled. So if you're going to be a memory keeper for African people, there are going to be some unpleasant, challenging conversations. And that's not the reason you're having them. You're having them because you have to be true to long distance memory if you're really going to talk about our full history. I think. And, and, and let me um, say this. How do you know how far we can go unless we go there, right? So, I mean, if not for Jaime Town, Jesse Jackson very easily would have won that primary. Um, I just, I'm looking at what's happening. The Little Mermaid, y'all big mad, don't matter. Uh, the fourth largest grossing uh, Memorial Day movie of all time. And Loree Daniel Favors uh, walked through some of the issues she had with it. But by and large, that was us showing up. But everybody's showing up because the world right now is like, okay, this culture, you could be, you know, it's allowed to call the silent majority, right? So the people you hear out there flapping their gums and running their mouths, they don't represent the majority of us. You know, and, and so we get twisted in our minds that, oh, they're not going to let us. Who's they? And then who's us? Right. Because as far as I can see, when we show up and do the things that we need to do, the world has to follow. They have to. It's like when we come together, it has to because it's righteous. Right. So I don't know. I don't know that, you know, him. I don't even feel like he has to. But I think the 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 work for us is to just constantly remember. Because I feel like we're still a lot of us operating in our um, ignorance and operating in our indoctrination and thinking that the little bit of things that we're doing, the little, you know, baby steps that we're taking towards freedom and liberation that, you know, somehow I got a little bit of it. So I know everything. And we don't sit in that soil enough or sit with these ancestors enough or, or listen enough to really just fully get there and then have power, you know, but yeah, it's, true. it's coming. It's it's coming. coming. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, even the media, I mean, you think about like you talk about jailbreaking the universities or us being here on a Saturday, uh, Roland being where he is. Like I just saw Jamel Hills, you know, going through her thing with Spotify. I was thinking I was I was waiting to hear this, what you thought about it. I know you talked about Unc over there with Skip. You said that's a power move. Is are we what is that? What should we take well, from these well, moments? First of all, first of all, um, we need to stop allowing them to sit us with mediocre people who uh, diminish uh, the message. And, and, and I get it. It's theater, it's WWE, it's all of that. But even in WWE, the, the, you know, there was, there was some leveling, you know, you, right. you, you were battling equals. Right. It's the rock you know? and, and Stone Cold Steve yeah. Austin. It's not the rock or something. How you got me sitting with this twerp, you know, which, I, which is an actual thing. So y'all can look up the definition and it's accurate. Drip Bayless. What? Yeah. What? Why, why, how, who, you, who, how do you need to know why? But we, you know, we keep perpetuating this mediocrity and then it gets emboldened because the indoctrination goes both ways. He yeah, thinks yeah. he deserves to be there to sit across from this Hall of oh, Famer yeah. to have these conversations, to have these opinions because he was a journalist sitting in the same seat of mediocrity, judging people with no, no talent, no abilities whatsoever. What gives you the right to question what anybody is doing that you can't even do? You can't even conceptualize this. But this is the world that we live in and we accept it because that check is good, right? Yeah. I'm getting that check. So let me, I'm going to keep quiet. I'm going to validate this. But we know we're validating it, yeah, right? Yes. And I don't know all of the details of Jamel Hill's situation, so I'm not even going to talk about it. But I do know that Joe Rogan did uh, somewhere in the ballpark of $200 million. And in her mind, like, until you give somebody black. Now, I don't know if you can force somebody to do that, which you can't. 
which we're seeing. So my thing is, if your thing is popular, Club Shay Shay is popular. He's taking that with him. We still going to watch Club Shay Shay. He's got 1.6 million subscribers to it. And folk are going to watch him when he sits down and talks with people because we like generally or don't like, but we're going to tune in to Shannon Sharp. Jamel, you don't need, you know, maybe you need to check, maybe you don't. But I feel like as long as we're chasing checks, we're always going to be in bondage. Checks are chains, right? Other people's Ooh. checks. Other checks people's checks. Chains. Other yeah. people's checks are chains. Other people's checks are chains. You know, it's interesting. Yesterday, um, I was on my way to a bookstore. I was hunting for something. And I stopped to get a cup of coffee. And somebody uh, called my name. Said the Carson. One of uh, my former students from Howard, uh, she was a student maybe about uh, 16, 17 years ago. I think she graduated, she said, in 06, 07. And we were talking. She actually works for Warner Brothers. And she's usually on the West Coast. She was here in town to do some things. She said, we have an office on this coast. But so I asked about the writer's strike. And she says, you know, it's very interesting because, of course, uh, Warner Brothers, she says, has one of, if not the highest paid executive CEO or whatever. And she said, but I'll be quite frank with you, Dr. Carr, the future is here and the future is direct to consumers. The future is direct to consumers. She said they don't know what to do right now because the <laughs> and so uh, and I'm thinking about us in particular. And, and as this summer unfolds and we we you know, venture off into some some new things. I've been talking, you know, for now for a couple of years about this intellectual CSI going to sites and doing places. You know, we control this. And to be in a space like Wednesday when I went over to Anacostia, Southeast, as they say in D.C., and going to Bus Boys and Ports over there on Martin Luther King Avenue. And, you know, I walked in about five minutes after everything started and Dan Black was already in full power plate and the place it was blackness blackness full blackness and the place was literally shoulder to shoulder i just stood up in there for like an hour and a half and then after it was over you know and he was signing books i mean you know at least at least a dozen nubians who are going to kemet were there there were folk who had come down from delaware there are folk who were in town from the west coast there were folk this is not regulated. So when, when, when the young sister yesterday was telling me, this is somebody who is near the living, beating heart of this whole franchise of image making. You talk about the Little Mermaid. You talk about those are concessions. Those aren't. Right. You know, I mean, they, they're only doing that because they're trying to attract our eyeballs. But what we're doing right now, this is Maroons, but we are completely. <laughs> and she said, that's it. It's direct. It's yeah. direct now. They don't know what to do. But we have a model, right? Um, we have a model. Yeah. The 102nd uh, commemoration of the decimation of, of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. May 31st, and it took two days for them to level something that took forever to build. But I think about, like, the, you. we talked our very first conversation about Ida B. Wells in the People's Grocery Store. Right. You big mad, right? You big mad because this you brought us here to build, and that's what we do. That's what we do. But your job is to separate us from our memory of who we are right and as long as we as long as we don't know that and that we can have to go to you to eat how, why do we have to go to you to eat we know how to plant seeds we brought seeds in our hair we don't need you to eat we don't need you to do anything we definitely don't need you to educate each other we don't need need you to to serve each other we don't need you 
to love each other. So let's stop using that model of chasing that, right? Now, again, I sit as somebody that didn't take a check to build something that I'm extremely proud of, but it's it can be done, right? You 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 know you gotta be strategic about it. You get your little coin and your benefits from you know, you know to steady job, and then you go out there and build in your community. You know, take the check, but be strategic about taking a check. The check ain't the end. No. Even if they give you ten million dollars, that's you. What about us? Well, <laughs> I mean, good. Okay, you're all right. This who is we keeps threading through it. I mean, you know what? Who is it for? Are we building a we? And they're going to be some very difficult conversations. I think this isn't a question of motive. This isn't a question of courage. I'm talking now strictly in terms of governance, who yeah. we are each other. And I'm talking in the most expansive sense, Not, whether we agree, disagree, we are all caught up in a system that is based on taking our labor for its purposes. So this isn't and what, I, what I'm about to say now isn't really about whether we agree or disagree on how best to free ourselves. Because some people believe in freeing themselves individually or them and they people. And then that's an example. And you follow me. We're not talking about that right now. But one thing is clear. This system is not going to go quietly. And when it, as it sees us recovering some form of momentum of memory, it's going to fight like hell to dictate what that memory looks like and who that memory serves. So when you mentioned Tulsa, for example, there's a there's a new book. This young brother, Victor uh, Luckerson, it's just because because even now we talk about Black Wall Street. We talk about Tulsa. The. This is why in our African states framework, movement and memory is extremely important. All those categories are important. I think today we're probably going to talk more about movement and memory. Movement and memory, of course, we remember asked the question that that conceptual category asked the question, how did or do. African people remember or narrate whatever experience we're talking about. Not how the social structure narrates it, but how do we narrate it? We lift 1921 Tulsa. We lift the Red Summer of 1919, not to reenact the trauma, but to remember what we have fought through, what we have faced, and how we have persevered. Now, Tulsa, the social structure almost wants to concentrate Tulsa on the trauma. Of course. And, and skip over the century since. This new book by this brother, uh, Luckerson, is oh, called... So you just happen to have that? <laughs> no, no, yeah. Built from the fire, right? Because it just came out. Like, I got this book maybe about three days ago. The epic story of Tulsa's Greenwood District, America's Black Wall Street, 100 years in the neighborhood that refused to be erased. This book talks about pre-Tulsa Black Wall Street, Tulsa Black Wall Street, and then, hence the title, Built from the Fire, everything that has happened since in fact he says and i'll just read from the from the inside jacket when ed goodwin moved with his parents to the greenwood neighborhood in tulsa oklahoma in 1914 his family joined a growing community on the cusp of becoming a national center of black life but just seven years later on may 31st 1921 hence the anniversary we just passed the teenage ed hid in his bathtub as a white mob descended on his neighborhood laying waste to 35 blocks and murdering as many as 300 people Tulsa race massacre goes on then he says but that was never the whole story of Greenwood again jolly blood how do you keep the we going movement and memory how did or do Africans remember that experience yes May 1921 what about June 1921 July 1921 what about May 
1931, May 1941, 51, 61, 71, 81, 91, 01, 11, 21, 100th anniversary of talk. Yeah, but there was a hundred years in between. The jacket goes on to say the Goodwins and their neighbors soon rebuilt it into a Mecca. In Ed's words, where nightlife thrives, small businesses flourished, and an underworld economy lived comfortably alongside public storefront. Prosperity and poverty intermixed, and icons from W.E.B. Du Bois to Muhammad Ali ambled down Greenwood Avenue alongside maids, doctors, and every occupation in between. I'm mentioning that because when we did talk about this a couple of years ago, we talked about those, those things. We talked about using some of the literature that's out there. Everything that has happened since goes on to say Ed Rose to become a prominent businessman and bought a newspaper called the Oklahoma Eagle to chronicle Greenwood's resurgence and battles against white bigotry. He and his wife, Jeannie, raised an ambitious family and their son, Jim, an attorney, embodied their hopes for the civil rights movement in his own work. But by the 1970s, urban renewal policies had nearly emptied the neighborhood, even as Jim and his neighbors tried to hold on to it. Today, while new high rises and encroaching gentrification risk wiping out Greenwood's legacy for good, the family newspaper remains. And Ed Goodwin's granddaughter, Regina, represents the neighborhood in the Oklahoma State Legislature, working alongside new generation of local activists. This book is 650, hold on, 656 pages. Black Wall Street, hold on, what happened in the century since? Jolly, movement and memory. How did, and here, and I'll end with this. Well, let me mention one other thing. July 4th this year, July 4th, 2023, uh, a book will be released that is being published by Mocha Media. That book is by our sister, our elder, a sister who she and her brother, Ajwa, and her Ghanaian and Ghanaian-American community at the Ghana Embassy a couple of months ago gave them Ghanaian citizenship. And of course, we talk about Mother Fletcher, Mother Viola Ford Fletcher's book by Mocha Media will be released and it's called, Don't Let Them Bury My Story. The oldest living survivor of the Tulsa Maxer in her own words. In other words, y'all acting like this happened in 21 and then you skip all the way over it. And hey, I loved Watchmen. Regina King ripped the frame out. Hey, but, hey, excuse me, but I'm still here. You're not gonna bury. And hey, you see this right here? I got a US passport. See, this is an American story. Hold on, what's that? This is the Ghanaian passport. See, what y'all don't understand is, it's one thing to have the momentum of a century of memory, Let's try a momentum of 10 or 100 centuries of memory. That's what y'all scared of. Yeah. <laughs> you ain't scared of 1619 project. You scared of 1619 BC project. <laughs> Coming out, oh my God. Anyway. When I look at Black Wall Street, I think of a generation out of enslavement building something so enviable that they had to firebomb an entire community of people because they had the audacity to say, what you not going to do? And then all they could respond with was violence, right? The audacity of these Negroes and why do you have a piano and how come you have airplanes and why I don't have anything because I'm mediocre and I've been told I'm supposed to have everything and I've never worked, never had to work a single day to earn any of this. So for me, it's always what we have done, we can do. And if we take that back a thousand years, what we have done, we can do. Yes. So the question is, is like Jesus saying, you can do greater things than I've done. Well, I ain't walked on water yet or turned water into wine, but I guess I can. Look, I'm Let's not sure it. I ever had to do because the more we study, the more we realize, oh, we did that before. This is the lesson. Come on. Yeah. Yes. So um, thank you. Uh, I saw you out in the Nubian streets um, yeah. being safe uh, at the uh, Arlington Cemetery. Had to go. 
it was nice. So those of you who follow Dr. Carr on Twitter, and I'll actually drop the link of that uh, and the YouTube of- I thought about you. I thought we should go live. And I thought I had to fight all these people out here. Although the black people out there, we all cool. I love going, I mean, I love going to Arlington because as you can imagine, the class structure is real. Uh, the people who are in security, waving people through, the people selling tickets, the people driving up and down. They got 250 landscapers alone. I ain't talking about the plumbers. I, I stopped and talked with two brothers who were in the plumbing truck to make sure I was going the right way. I'm saying, it ain't, black people out there aren't it? So I'm sure, but if I had tried to live stream, I'm sure they would have been like, yo, man, I'm just letting you know they're going to come around here in a minute. But but I said, no, I'll just capture a couple of minutes because I knew we were coming here and anticipating this summer, there's going to be a lot more of that. We're going to do a lot more of that. And then well, drop I, I appreciate it. it was wonderful. So that not a weed in sight. Not a weed in sight. Oh, well, no, oh my goodness. This weekend, um, this past Sunday on CBS Sunday morning, which you know, right up there with 60 minutes, they they at least they they do some good journalism. They had a piece um on all of the um forts that are now being renamed that uh folk are calling woke or whatever. So Fort Bragg, and it's interesting, Dr. Carl. Like, I never thought, you know, when you drive down south, you see all of the forts as you're coming down. You never think these are Confederates. You couldn't imagine that these things were named after losers and traitors. You, you, you are African from Jersey. I'm African from Tennessee. We knew they were Confederates, but what we didn't know was the contempt we should have for those Confederates because it, it was normalized to us. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but yeah. Oh, yeah, no question. No Home question. streets, Bobby Jones. I'm like, what the hell? You know, now, you know, it's like, this must go. So it's like, well, you, you're you changing our culture. And I, yes, it needs to be changed. Y'all, y'all celebrating heroes. Well, you can do it. We're just going to leave you. See, we got to get the good sense to walk away from our abuses. Y'all going to figure out in a minute. We're in an abusive relationship called so, United States of America. So Fort, Fort Bragg is now Fort Liberty, uh, which is great. Uh, yeah, and then I had to go down a rabbit hole. Like, who the hell was Fort Bragg? I mean, who was Bragg anyway? Like, why? Why is this person even Braxton Bragg? Who is Braxton Bragg? Uh, Warrington, North Carolina, West Point, all of that. Oh, okay. Uh, so he elevated. He was elevated to the Army of Mississippi later in your backyard, known as the Army of Tennessee, Brigadier right. General. That's right. uh, so they. So he was fighting against America, and but then we put. He went to West Point. Robert E. Lee went to West Point. Uh, um, General Oliver Howard went to all them boys was together. And then they chose up sides in 1861. This is the thing people don't understand, which is why the first two uh, funerals held in the new amphitheater at Arlington National Cemetery were for Confederate soldiers. The United States government made a decision. No, come on back, because I'm going to mention this right quick. The U.S. government made a decision that in to to gesture toward and symbolize national healing, the first two soldiers they would have a formal funeral at Arlington for were Confederates. When y'all go to Confederate, when y'all go to Arlington National Cemetery, you go up to that plantation house built by Africans called Arlington House, go around the corner and then go up that hill. There is a huge Confederate monument there right across the street from the little plaque for the Buffalo soldiers that Colin Powell was responsible for. And there are about a hundred and I forget how many. No, maybe 1250 uh, U.S. colored troops buried in another section, section 27 of them. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there's a Confederate monument up there. And there are Africans on that monument. People say, well, they were black people fought for Confederacy. No, they were enslaved Africans who were conscripted into the Confederate army. And when they built that monument, in fact, there's a, there's a, um, remember, Prof, again, y'all, if you are in narrative, 
And if you're a newbie, that means you're a narrative. If you're watching this later and not in either one of those, understanding our vast archive, which is vast now and growing, we just getting started. We did a whole conversation when we talked about the daughters of the uh, Confederacy. And there's a there's a picture on a on the cover of one of the books on the daughters of the Confederacy with that Confederate monument that is in Arlington Cemetery. The first two soldiers that they that they had a funeral for out there in the amphitheater were Confederate soldiers. So brag, it's not a, it's not a mystery why these things are named for these Confederates. Why? Because this country, they called it redemption in the 19th century after Reconstruction. We have to study the Reconstruction movement. We also have to study redemption, meaning what? They have a narrative. They have jollies. And we think somehow, oh yeah, Black history is American history. It's progress. We built this country. It's progress. No, you are poisoning your blood. These people have an agenda. If you want to be part of their body politic, you know your body part? You can guess what your body part is. <laughs> anyway <laughs> and on, on that right because to that point i was just thinking about water being poisoned you know we, mm -hmm. we call this a clean glass of water but every day we're drinking poison water and forced to have to try to live with it right and that every day is an assault on our young people who don't know right we're in schools where you're being taught things or not being taught things your your school may be named for somebody you have to walk down the street if you're in the South, you have to see Confederate flags. You, And you're never told that that is the flag of a traitor. That is a flag of a loser. That's you're right. told that's heritage, right? And the gaslighting is vast. It's, it's deep. It's yeah. wide. And so I question, Dr. Carr, whether, whether these folk that are out here gaslighting, whether they even know, because generation, as you mentioned, I didn't even think about they have jollies too, right? Oh, generation, generation, they've been conditioned to believe that this is the truth. But it's really not, right? No more no, than Jesus well, is right. Let me ask, let, let's ask it. Is, is it not the truth? It's In not. other words, what is the function of narrative? In other words, you know, when we start talking about truth, and like Dr. Obinga would always say, you got knowledge by fact, knowledge by opinion, knowledge by faith. Uh, fact would also maybe knowledge by reason. It is a fact that the states of the Confederacy seceded from the Union and fought a civil war. But the opinion comes in with how to make meaning of that. So when you bury those first two Confederate soldiers, when you do a funeral for them, now they weren't the first two bodies buried there. Um, but when you do that, are you of the opinion that it is more important to keep the United States going than anybody's individual or group grievance? In other words, the fact is y'all fought, but how do we interpret that fact? So when people say truth, I'm, I'm wondering how we deal. Du Bois fought with that his whole life. We're going to talk about Du Bois and his friend Charles Young in a minute. When Du Bois writes in the suppression of the African slave trade to the United States of America, his doctoral dissertation, they turn to a book. And at the end, he says the, the important thing, the important moment to correct a moral wrong is the moment it occurs. Because if you let it linger, it's going to turn to something else. He yeah. said nobody would have looked with more horror at the Civil War than George Washington and them. But if you had looked at what they set up, it was inevitable that this was going to happen. So when we fast forward to today and we say, we're going to tell the truth. Are we? Is the truth the same? Isn't it? I mean, again, I mean, obviously not. Obviously, we have different truths, but the reality is the fact. They the fought. Fact is the reality. Number they one. succeeded. That's right. And fought against the United States of America, which That's makes right. them what? Traitors? Well, the, they, they fought against the federal government because they okay. would say they were fighting for the United States of America. 
You understand? The Confederate States of America's concept was they were being true to the federal constitution. In other words, they said that what the federal government is attempting to do is deprive us of our ability to be free. Slavery is written into this document. There's no 14th Amendment. There's no 13th Amendment. There's no 15th Amendment. When they seceded, they're like, why are y'all interfering with us? The problem they had was us. In other words, we had a truth. Our truth is, forget y'all. As I'm walking through Arlington National Cemetery and I'm looking at these tombs and I'm looking at these headstones, I'm wondering, and I'm going to use this metaphor because I think it's entirely appropriate. How in the hell am I supposed to look at George Washington differently than any sane human being we look at Adolf Hitler. I, I want somebody to answer that for me. I'm, I'm, I'm asking a very serious question now. I'm a person of African Don't do it, Lee. Don't do Arlington. it in perfect. <laughs> no, 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 no. Arlington is a plantation. Arlington was a plantation. Professor Hunter, I tell you, one of the things I always love to do is to go into spaces into public spaces like that, because as I said, the laboring classes in those spaces are our people. So it's black people, brothers working in the bookstore, sisters selling tickets for the ride, for the trams going around, brothers and sisters wanting people, ushering what seemed to be 100 or 300 or 500 million middle school and high school students. <laughs> and, I, and, and you know, I'm not one to normally announce myself, so I'm trying to be low key. But for some reason, I'm saying I'm going to see Charles Young. So I felt a little, I wasn't really in a very charitable mood. So I rocked one of my Paul Lawrence Dunbar shirts. And this is the Black Studies Matter shirt. You know what I'm saying? I was rocking my Black Studies Matter shirt with the Car G. Woodson and Paul Lawrence Dunbar on the back from Nubia Green and them. When I tell you, when I came through there, at least, I don't know, seven or eight of these security guards, the sister selling tickets, as I'm walking up the hill, one of the brothers who worked there, love that shirt, bro. Love that shirt, bro. And then it was I'm walking up by where John Kennedy is buried, where the Kennedy family. And this old white woman's like, I just want to tell you how much I love that shirt. I'm like, well, thank you. It's a different thing, though, right? And I'm going back to get on the train, and the brother who's wave directing traffic into the parking lot, he said, Hey man, what can I get with them shirts? I said, You gotta go to a Dunbar High School website in DC, you know, over at Northwest. The, they got a car with an academy. He said, Oh, thank you, man. I gotta get I'm saying that to say that there are competing memories. And I'm saying to me, George Washington, why would I look at Washington different than I would look at Hitler? I'm an African person. This was a plantation. George Washington's step-grandson built the house. No, I'm sorry. What am I saying? See, this is that stupid stuff black people talk about. We built the country. No, no, no. George Washington's step-grandson, Custis, ordered Africans to build what is now Arlington House. That boy's father who was martha washington's son with her first husband george washington's so-called stepson is the one that purchased the land and they used to call it mount washington george washington's step-grandson's daughter mary she the one married robert e lee her distant cousin because you know that's how they get down and that's how robert e lee who was the grandson of a governor of virginia ended up being the master of arlington plantation so there will be no reconciliation for me. I'm saying if this were a cemetery started by Nazis with Nazi founding, if I'm not only someone Jewish, but someone who has common humanity, 
right. with Jews, which would include originally the Beta Israel, the Ashkenazim, the Ethiopian Jews included. Let's not even talk about what they do to Ethiopian Jews have done over the years in Israel, but let's set that aside for a minute. How am I supposed to frame Gerbils and Gearing? How am I supposed to frame them? Wow. You know, because of our education system, when you said that originally, I was like, oh, he has stepped in something. Well, just I'm just wondering because Charles Young is going to bring all this to light. Okay, you know? well, let's go. Let's go. Because I, know, I, I'm, I'm helping because I'm really trying to call you, you. You you have said something that I'm forced to sit with because, you know, uh, he couldn't tell a lie and he chopped down a cherry tree and he's a father of this country and I'm an American. So I have to work through all of that to arrive at the place that you've arrived at logically. And it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. So thank you. Well, I've been in this discomfort for a, a, a minute because you yeah. can't dispute it. Yes, yes. But I mean, what do we do with it? Again, we don't even talk about own a judge and all. You know, we're not even talking about you know the audacity to force somebody back into enslavement. We're not even talking about the teeth in his head that he literally took out the mouths of enslaved people. We're not even talking about the teeth that we were told were wooden teeth, but were actually the teeth of the enslaved. We're not going to talk about any of that, but you just laid that and gave a nice. No, I'm just, I'm just, I, I really am wondering because I, for me, of course I look at him the same way. Of course I look at him the same way. For people who don't, I respect your humanity, your opinion, but I also would not allow you to narrate our history because you are not a jolly for African people. You're an American jolly. And I can respect that because we all get to choose how we want to. And ultimately, an American jolly who brings up the question will ultimately have to uh, acknowledge the fact and confront the fact that this clash is inevitable. It cannot be reconciled unless it can be reconciled. Because if you're saying I'm a Christian, mm. I'm a Muslim, or I believe in our common humanity so that there is no sin, if you believe in that, if you got that way of knowing, that can't be forgiven. Then you got to forgive Hitler. Oh, and I put Jesus in there. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, but 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 if that's your way of knowing, see, I'm not from that way. Right, 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 right. So so there, as you walk through Arlington Cemetery, because we've done this, you've done this with you know um, with Megar Evers and his, and his brother. You know, like there are some people listening right now whose family members are there. For them, it is sacred that land. Why? Why is it sacred? Because their family is there. Exactly. Not because George Washington is there, because your uncle is there, because your auntie is there, because your uncle who was in the army and his wife is there. You're, it's sacred because Megger Wiley Evers is there. And it is sacred because Thurgood Marshall and Joe Lewis are there. It is sacred because Benjamin O. Davis is there. It's sacred because Charles Ada Young. It's not sacred because George Washington, that was a plantation for George. It's not sacred because those Confederates. So see, this is what I'm saying. These are dueling memories. And it's only in polite uh, agreements to not talk about it that we get here. Look, I got all the respect in the world for my friend Nicole Hannah Jones. The, the, the 1619 Project was on ABC. It was a major event in the social structure. That's great. Now, of course, I'm not going to sit up. I, I encourage everybody to watch. But my thing is, I'm not trying to get in this story. So every time somebody says, we helped build this country, I'm like, so you want credit for being someone who helped in a settler They brought you here. So are you going to tell me that the, in the, the, that the German economy, the, the originators of the Volkswagen, those who pioneered rocket science technology, you want credit because you were experimenting on in concentration camp? Do you, do you know every one of these plantations was a death camp? 
We helped build this country. What the hell are you talking about? But guess what? No harm, no foul, because even you talking about it's going to create discomfort. You know, if Amanda Gorman's going to write a poem, The Hill We Climb, that's fine. Now, I mean, you know, Elizabeth Alexander did her poem for Obama. Uh, Maya Angelou did her poem for uh, Bill Clinton. And, wow. you know, he, yes, yeah. yeah, and it's beautiful. I mean, now, if you put them together, I wouldn't necessarily rank them in the top billion of great poems in public, but they were all for presidents. So that makes them significant. And now you want to ban this young sister's book in Florida. Why? Because you, might, you can't read. And you thought it was okay. You read anyway, and you don't read no poetry anyway. You know, she doesn't read. She hasn't read a single book. No, that filled out the form. No, but, but 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 that's the whole thing. She's not fighting anything Amanda Gorman said or wrote. She's fighting Amanda Gorman. Right. You know, and she, which means she's fighting Karen Hunter and Greg Carr and everybody else. I'm fighting you. Your pre and here's the thing. My response would be, I am much more concerned, lady. Well, two responses. What you think about me? Doesn't matter to me at all unless it impacts public policy. And at this point, I'm going to roll over you like water once we understand that we don't have common interests. But the second thing is, I'm much more concerned about the shadow ban. I'm much more concerned about the shadow book ban than the one they're trying to enact. You know what the shadow book ban is? Before she filled out that form, were there copies of the hill we climb in, in, in the library? If the answer is yes, the question is, when the last time one was checked out? You know what a shadow ban is when you have a book and don't read it? People say they banned our books. When the last time you went in the library and checked out a book? Let's be clear. The shadow ban is what we need to be terrified of because we ain't even reading the books that we can get. Now we're going to get up and, and this is the thing. I'm, we get to dictate if there's a we in our governance formation, we get to dictate who is the most valuable, who is the most. In fact, in a minute. Uh, let me and thank you. While you looking, I just want to reiterate, I had the audacity and the ignorance to try to put together 100 books Black people should read as a canon. And then sitting here with you every Saturday, how in the hell can any one person make that decision? No. So I, I had to back up because yeah. I started. I had a, and I was asking everybody, all the authors, what are your favorite books? So I, you know, have a collective. But I was like, that's so what what uh, this social structure does and, and and consensus and okay so everybody thinks Malcolm X autobiography that should be in it and then man I gotta have something for children I'm sitting there like who am I I had to like check my own no, no, my, I, I, my I, own I, ego I, I, at the I, point like no I think it's important Rob I don't think so I mean I think let me just you know from my perspective that is important work depending on where it comes from and who's doing it. You're not the New York Times, although your name has appeared there many times, either in front or uh, next to. You're not the social structure media. You're a governance media. And convening conversations like that are important for us because even if we agree or don't agree, how untold people will say, oh, I didn't know about that book. Right. Say, oh, I'm going to read this. Oh, I didn't instead, like this of, instead of being the top 100, I think there should be a rolling list of books that are, you know. That's true. But some books are more important. Yeah, some but... That, that one person say, here are the 100 books, because you've seen those lists, 100 books you must read before you die, 100 movies, you you know, it's like the top 10 of all time. And like, who gets to determine that? Well, I mean, I, 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 it, hopefully, we, as we recover our sanity, if we're going to, in fact, do that, uh, a thousand years from now, I don't know that anything written by African people in the United States in the last several hundred years would make a top list. 
because hopefully that trauma, it, it, we, you might, you might, we might pick a couple to document the trauma. You know, maybe Souls of Black Folk, maybe Miseducation or something like that. But we beyond that. But I tell you a book that would be on there or, or, or a text that would be on there would be Tahotep from, you know, 2500 so-called B.C., 4,500 4, years ago. In other words, there are narratives that endure for their quality, for their vision. But I don't know that anything by Lorraine Hansberry or James Baldwin, I don't know anything that would be, I don't know that because those things are things that document our persistence, our resilience, our questioning, but the social structure that called them into existence, that willed them into existence because we had to resist, that having been triumphed over, this is this is what E. Franklin Frazier raised near the end of his life in the article in the little essay he wrote called The Failure of the Negro Intellectual. He said, I went to this international conference of black people and they're talking about the deeper questions of humanity and society. They're talking about, you know, the nature of human society, and how we can change it, the threats that face us as a race, as a group of people, as a species. He said, and what I noticed was these Africans from the Caribbean, from Africa and from talking about, he said, and the American Negro, the U.S. Negro, you know, what we were talking about the race problem. He said, and that's when it dawned on me. The Negro intellectual is obsessed with the smaller questions, which we have to be obsessed with. But these and I think that's where a lot of this whole question of black excellence and black joy and this I get the impulse for that, but please, it's still informed by the trauma. So a, a thousand years from now, it may be the things that we produce that speak to the joy of our humanity out of our cultural experiences that will survive. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It, it may not even be the book, it might be the music. A thousand years from now, if we're still talking about that, then uh, there's yeah, in trouble. failure. Well, we won't even be because the AI will have already sourced oh. us for uh, <laughs> That's right. Well, we might be here because of the AI. I don't know. Two no, days. no question. Well, definitely the AI, not artificial intelligence, alien intelligence. Alien is in anti-human, as in Europe, uh, and its machinations of uh, race is a is an alien intelligence. But, but, but let's let's talk about Charles Young. Let's do that. Um, in fact, what we saw uh, at the beginning there, when we saw a descendant of now Brigadier General Charles Young accepting the promotion a promotion which actually has its roots in africans fighting for that while charles young was alive we'll talk we talked about charles young last week but i want to say a few more things about young in fact before i say anything else let me just um read from a poem by county cullen charles young made transition in 1922 in nigeria we'll talk about that in a minute his funeral in Nigeria by the Nigerian soldiers and the British, they were uh, of course being colonized by the British at the time, but black hands lowered Charles um, Young's oak casket into the earth there in Nigeria in Lagos. And it was black hands that disinterred him a year later in 1923, May, May 1923 because the British, these criminals had a rule that if you were buried in their protectorate called Nigeria, that you could not be disinterred and sent to wherever you were born or your family wanted your remains to rest for at least a year. So Ada Young, Charles Young's wife, his very good friend and champion, W.E.B. Du Bois, who we'll come back to in a minute, they fought along with 
black communities all over the United States, along with Colonel Charles Young's fraternity. He was made an honorary member of Omega Psi Phi. I was <laughs> texting with uh, Bob Jeremiah Wright, who is, of course, a faithful and stalwart member of Omega Psi Phi. And he was kidding. He said, yeah, when you were talking about Charles Young in office hours the other night, <laughs> he said, I, I, I resisted the urge to remind you that he was acute. <laughs> no, yeah, him and Carl G. Wilson, no question. They, they weren't alphas, and that's okay. I love it. I just love the fact that the Omegas fought. And the Young's like, we got to get my husband back over here. And they like, we got you. We got you. And Du Bois was, was hell on them, boy. But, but, but the black community generally, I'm bringing all this up to say that in the wake of Charles Young's reinterment at Arlington, and then Ada fought for years to get a proper block of stone. And it's a beautiful block of stone with Young on one side. And on the other side, it's got Charles and, and Ada Young. The Omegas helped raise money. Du Bois helped raise money. When they finally had the funeral, June the 1st, 1923, they had it in that same amphitheater where the first two people to be funeralized, as black people call it, at Arlington, were Confederate soldiers, a show of national unity. Just these people's jollies, not our jollies. The third person to be funeralized remains on the steps outside the amphitheater under a big block of stone. That would be the person whose name is forever lost to history. Uh, he, he is narrated generally as the unknown soldier the tomb of the unknown soldier. That was the third person. Confederate, Confederate, unknown soldier, the fourth human being to be funeralized at Arlington, Plantation, Fort Mount Washington, now cemetery. The fourth person, Confederate, Confederate, unknown soldier, Charles Young. Charles Young was funeralized on June the 1st, 1923. Charles Young's birthday, black people for years marked his birthday and a ritual moment for us, movement and memory. It's not a ritual moment now because our memories are short as hell. We got President's Day, we hollering about Juneteenth. Now white folks on Juneteenth banners in South Carolina, we upset. I'm like, I don't give a damn. You can put Charlie Brown on the damn. Juneteenth banner. Y'all want to fight about that? Go ahead. And somebody should fight about it. That's your body part. Not my body part. I'm in the head. You could be in the fist. But understand the head reminds the fist what to hit, what not to hit. In 1925, County Cullen, another poet, wrote a poem for Charles Young. Let me read it. In memory of Colonel Charles Young. This is County Cullen, the great son of the Caribbean by way of African US, whose poem, If We Must Die, Let Us Nobly Die, written in the wake of the red summer, 1919. County Cullen says, along the shore, the tall, thin grass that fringes that dark river, while sinuously soft feet pass, begins to bleed and quiver. The great dark voice breaks with a sob across the womb of night. Above your grave, the tom-toms throb and the hills are weird at night. 
I'm sorry. And the hills are weird with light. The great dark heart is like a well drained bitter by the sky. And all the honeyed lies they tell come here to thirst and die. No lie is strong enough to kill the roots that work below. From your rich dust and slaughtered will, a tree with tongues will grow. As I stood there before the mortal remains, Charles and Ada Young, which is on a hill, by the way. Ain't no easy way to get to section three. <laughs> Woo! And on the wrong shoes, Professor Hunter. Now I got <laughs> I got my exercise. I had forgotten. See, I, I go to Arlington. I don't go to Arlington a lot, but I tell you, if you haven't been, you've never been to Arlington, you should go because your ancestors are there. There are 3,800 free Africans who lived during the period of the Civil War. Freedman's Village was on the grounds of Arlington. There are 3,800 of them there. There are 1,500 U.S. colored troops. All this in Section 27, just in Section 27. Our ancestors are there. It ain't just the people we know in the, over the last 100 years, 150 years. It's all those other people. And so, but to get to Charles Young, when you leave a visitor center, you got to walk a long way. And so... When I got around there, I'm looking for section three. And the closer I got, the more I realized I'm going to the right place. So I passed these two brothers. They were outside the truck. Now, mind you, like I said, they got 250 landscapers alone. These cats are on the plumbing crew. So I'm sitting talking to these brothers. I said, I'm going up section three. And I started to talk about Charles Young. I said, no, nah, I ain't no need to do all that because, you know, let me just vibe with these brothers because as ralph ellison once wrote in a great little one of my favorite essays by uh the great ralph ellison son of oklahoma the little man at chira station which was the train station extension at tuskegee he said that his music teacher at tuskegee the sister said when he went down and studied music he said why are you playing that trumpet while you're playing you're practicing your musical instruments by the way charles young was a multi uh multi-instrument musician piano flute he composed music. He composed music for his friend Paul Dunbar, who would come from Dayton, and they would sit there at uh, Young's home, H O L M, Young's home, uh, which was what Charles Young, a young named their house. And Charles Young would compose music for Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poems. He wrote uh, plays. He wrote a play on Toussaint Louverture. Had one in mind on John Brown. Oh man, Charles Young. We ain't gonna talk about Charles Young the way we could today. Just a little bit today. Just a little bit because. What you think about this but in any race I, you know i didn't want to get into all that because but one of the things ralph ellison talked about in his essay the little man at chiao station was that you know my teacher told me in alabama at tuskegee as i was practicing always do your best always practice and understand that you might think you're playing for me or for those master musicians or for your teachers but you know that train station that little train station where they come off the spur and comes out here yeah there's a little man that sits in there. You probably don't pay attention to him. You might think he's, you know, bomb or just the guy that works there. Maybe he just sweeps the little corners of the room. Yeah. You got to play like that little man knows more about music than anybody. And then Ellison in the rest of the essay talks about the sites of expertise. And he talks about, he gives the story of being, you know, in the Metropolitan uh, Opera in New York. And how 
you know, you have the great conductors and the great musicians and the, and the music critics and the great singers and the great instrumentalists. And they play. He says, one day I'm in there between shows and I'm listening to this debate over who's, who sings the greatest aria, who's the greatest tenor, who's the greatest mezzo soprano and the attention to detail and the command of music and the, and the ear for being able to distinguish is exquisite. And I said, which, which, which critics are these? Who are these the writers from the New York Times? I mean, so he looks around and who is it? It's the brothers who move the sets. Who has heard this music more than anyone? The people who move the sets and the scenery. <laughs> They've heard every show ever been produced at the Met. So when you know, whenever you go in a space, always listen with the. I ain't saying necessarily talk all the time. Listen to the people who work there. And so I, I go to Arlington. I be chopping it up with the ground crew, with the people out there working in that hot heat. The brothers who were pulling. Um, um pulling off the um they call it a vault uh making the vault for the for the graves it's an active cemetery and i saw the brothers i said man y'all working like hell yeah man it's hot see y'all really this is an active cemetery he said yeah man all the time brother and i'm watching them grave diggers not digging the grave grave has been dug but now they're preparing i saw the tarp over the you know so i passed these two brothers coming up the hill they outside the truck and I said, where's section three, brothers? I think I'm going the right way. And then one brother said, I'm not sure. And he said, hey, man, where the other? And so the guy said, well, you can put up on the app. He said, you got the app? I said, no, I ain't got the app because, you know me, I'm trying to figure it out. I don't like to have my whole mind attuned to the devices. But I've been walking for about 20 minutes. And I'm going, I'm going the right way because you got to go up where the amphitheater is, two unknown soldiers, and then you go beyond and go over there. So I, I know where I'm going kind of. I just want to confirm. I said, that's what I told him. I said, I'm just trying to confirm. He said, oh, so he said, I said, so so what do y'all do? He said, Oh no, we in the plumbing. He said, That's why I don't know. I usually don't come over here, work on this side. We they only call us when something goes wrong. I said, like what? So now he's pointing at the drains. And I'm looking at these exquisitely crafted curbs and drains. And if you look like you go, you see a sewer on the street, but these joints is so clean. And I'm looking at these cats with this kitted out truck with all this stuff on it. And I'm like, their job is to go in. And he said, but you could go down that way. Look, according to this, you can go down that way. And he's pointing across the grass. Now, people are not walking on the grass. You can walk on the grass, of course. You do rituals on the grass, this kind of thing. So he says, you can go across there. And I said, yeah, but I, I think that I probably just need to go up this street. He said, no, I think they, they're saying here you need to go. And I'm thinking to myself, you wrong. But I'm going to listen to you because you work here and I don't. So I went across, cutting through, walking past the graves, got on the street, saw the signs, and hmm, came across, and like the top of a circle had to come all the way back. Now I'm looking down on the brothers, and I'm like, okay, I'm getting my exercise. Now. I told y'all I could have come up this street, but it's okay, because it was more important to have that conversation. Anyway, I said, so when I got up to the top of the, the, the circle, I looked up, and I seen this hill this with these graves going up the hill, and I said, oh, yeah, this is where they're up there. And I thought to myself, now, see, if I start walking up that hill in these shoes and come tumbling down, <laughs> I'm not in the middle. My daddy was a veteran of World War II, but they can't bear, I'm, they don't bear me in Arlington. And it's I, so I kept walking and I came across. Then I started hearing, and it started getting louder the closer I got on the other side as I'm coming up around to come up the ridge. And then what came into view? A work crew paving a stretch of the service road that was up there. They're working too on not just paving, but refurbishing the concrete 
on this side, well, not kind of sidewalk, almost like a gutter. I'm raising out to say that that crew, I saw maybe two or three white people, one of them a white woman, but they were predominantly non-white, Latino. I stopped and chatted for a couple of seconds with a brother who was there. Uh, by accent, I think he's probably a son of the Caribbean or the continent, but I didn't ask him. Um, and that's when I passed Walter Reed. When I saw Walter Reed, I said, I know it's coming close to Charles Young because I know Walter Reed. I said, now it was coming back to me. There's a tree. Just on the other side of that tree is the big block of stone with Charles and Ada Young. So they're behind a tree if you're coming in from the ridge. But if you look over beyond them, they're on the top of a hill looking down on all these people. And when County Cullen's poem talks about no lies strong enough to kill the roots that work below, from your rich dust and slaughtered will, a tree with tongues will grow. It's like it's a perfect poem because there's a tree that no doubt has been fed by the mortal remains of Charles A. De Young because they've been there. Uh, Charles has been there for a century. Ada Young made transition in the early 1950s. But I'm raising all that because we all going to go that way. You understand? And by the way, the book I was reading from that includes this is a very good book called For Race and Country, The Life and Career of Colonel Charles Young by David Kilroy. It's one of the few books on Young. And everybody, always they always write in these books, David Igg and them, new book on King, whatever. It amazing, every generation, they say, must tell its own story. I tend to trust in terms of the rhythm and feel of the times, the things that were written or, or spoken or come to us from the moment. And I understand people say, well, new archival documents, new things revealed. I understand. But here's the thing you have to understand. No archive can replicate the moment that it claims to document. It can help us better gain a better understanding of the times. It can better give us a better understanding of the thinking. But ultimately, each person who tells a story is narrating it with their assumptions. There is a brand new book, an excellent book by this brother, uh, Chad Williams, called The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois in the First World War. I'm, I'm going to talk to this brother. I mean, this brother got to have a conversation. I, I, I like this book. He's at Brandeis University. This is Chad Williams right here. Brother Chad Williams. I've seen a couple of talks he's given since the book came out. The whole book, the whole 500-page book is about W.E.B. Du Bois. And it, and it uses as its point of entry the fact that Du Bois wrote over a thousand pages on World War I. Du Bois wrote, uh, uh, Man's Key and this other brother collaborated and the book was never published. Many of Du Bois's books, many of Du Bois's manuscripts and, and writings are unpublished. A vast archive of unpublished stuff. This thousand-page book is one of them, and the book is called, uh, what's it called? The Black Man and the Wounded World. Du Bois calls World War I a failure. He said, you know, World War I is when the United States basically announced itself as, hey, uh, hey, Spain and England and France. Hey, Ma, talking to England. We got next. So we're the bastard offspring, settler colonial offspring of y'all. And now we kind of got our sea legs under us. And now we're going to take the next reign of helping you perpetuate global white supremacy. Uh, by the way, shout out to the United States government. Uh, Finland just joined NATO. Uh, Zaleski is over there begging for Ukraine to join. Uh, the Secretary uh, Blinken just gave a speech, hype man speech at, Nate, uh, at, at the meeting they had, uh, they're having now. You know, and he's in Finland. You know, I'm like, look, man, 
y'all little alliances. In fact, it was so funny while you there doing that. This is the front page of Financial Times Weekend. CIA chief made secret visit to China. Anyway, y'all know what it is. We out here talking, picking up sides in Europe versus the world. But my point is that the United States in World War One basically exploded out of its attempt to subdue the hemisphere, to jump the water and stick its nose more fully into the affairs of the world. Uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson declaring war on Germany and this kind of thing. I'm bringing all it up to say that what Chad Williams does is talk about how Du Bois narrated this. Because if you remember in 1915, he wrote a very important essay in Atlantic magazine called The African Roots of War where he talks about global imperialism and white supremacy and how Africa and the fight over African resources, the first fight over African resources in the contemporary world being the fight to bring us into this world, something he would write about later in Black Reconstruction in America, 1935. But imagine Du Bois's global history read through how African people have been sucked into this criminal enterprise and how those of us in the United States, while fighting for some form of autonomy, freedom as we might call it, as in camp freedom, for some ability to self-determine from 1914 to 1918, a year before the Red Summer 1919, and then two years later, the massacres at Tulsa. Du Bois says, but what the United States was doing, what this social structure was doing was trying to expand, perfect, extend its dominance as a country, as a, as, a, as a reification of white supremacy, all this stuff. And what Chad Williams does is do a brilliant job in picking as much as he can Du Bois's archives clean. There is a substantial amount of this book that is dedicated to the life of Charles Young. And we're going to talk about, again, I'm coming to Charles Young in a second. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on him today, but I really want to do that because those of you who are not in narrative and not in Nubia, we spent Monday night talking about Charles Young a little bit because one of the books I brought back from Wilberforce last week was a book that, you know, it, I, I, I don't see this book easily gotten, but you can get it if you go to the website for the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center in Wilberforce. So Sister Carolyn and all them, and you, some of the people that you all met uh, when we, I tried to introduce you to them on Saturday when after with uh, Bobby Larry Crow and Mama LaBisi when you know we had the Delaney Martin Delaney ritual this is the book we talked about Monday night in Nubia yours for race and country reflections on the life of Colonel Charles Young Dr. Carolyn Maslumi is a national treasure I mean a black national treasure I mean you people talk about America but you know I'm, I'm not in the chair move toward the United States of America today and I really don't care um that's not true. I do always care what, what our people think. But for those who would say, you know, you're American. I'm like, yeah. Okay. But at any rate, it's a book of quilts. They made a call. Uh, Alicia Brown, Carolyn Mazumi, um, Mazlumi, rather, Brian Shellam, and Floyd Thomas, who was uh, curator for many years at the National Museum of Wilberforce. They made a call for sisters, non-white women, to create, these are black women mostly, um, quilts about Charles Young, and they create these quilts. This is Viola Burley Leak from Washington, D.C. Uh, we talked a lot, and I won't reiterate this. If you're in Nubia, you can always go into the archive and see uh, our conversation. This is Sandra Scott, sister from Cambridge, UK. Did a whole one on uh, the death of Charles Young, and you see there, uh, very interesting how she narrated. Actually, this is the, uh, the, the salute that they gave, the Nigerian soldiers gave when they buried him in Nigeria. You see them giving that 21-gun salute uh, uh, in front of a, 
uh, quilted piece representing the continent of Africa. And of course, those same soldiers then exhume him, send him. He comes into the harbor in Brooklyn and then the brothers take him. By then there are Charles Young posts, the American Legion at one time, I think John F. Kennedy had like 15 American Legion posts named for him. Charles Young has 16. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing how someone like Charles Young could fall out of the movement and memory of African people in this country. And Chad Williams writes exquisitely about Du Bois's uh, closed ranks, famous closed ranks editorial in the Crisis Magazine, where he says, well, let's go off and fight this war and then we'll, we'll settle what we need to do because we're fighting fascism. And Du Bois says, I regretted that for the rest of my life. He spends the rest of his life in regret for that because he comes, of course, after the war, he, he, he writes the famous editorial, We Return Fighting. Because the Red Summer is right there. His friend James William Johnson naming it that. Because what you doing that uniform, boy? Lynchings and race wars. We know Chicago and Oscar in 1919. Uh, the thing that drove jo is Josephine Baker's birthday coming. Uh, the thing that drove Josephine Baker into uh, how to leave East St. Louis. The pogroms down there that they did. These these white riots. Uh, Sandy Darity. Uh, was at UMass uh, and this white man asked him a couple of days ago it's kind of gone viral on social media about black on black crime and then Sandy you know took him out talking about the hundred or more race pogroms and I'm like that's a, that's good but people are like yeah see that's how you handle it no that's not how you handle it I mean that is one way to handle it absolutely but really the way to handle it I would handle it be like yeah okay why don't white crime is why we're having this conversation in English. Why you're asking me the question in English and why I'm understanding it in English. Let's talk about violence, sir. No, no, hey, come here. Mm -mm, no, get your ass with me. Come, I, I don't, mm -mm, you didn't touch the tar, baby. Now, let's dance. Let's talk about violence. Let's talk about violence. I don't want to talk about Tulsa. I don't want to talk about Chicago. I don't want to talk about all No, I want to talk about the violence that has me speaking English. Do you really want to have this? I want to have the conversation that says, well, you talk about black on black violence. I want to have a conversation where you call me black and I'm calling you white. You know where that came from? That came from some ancestors of who we call white people. I'm not going to put it on you, man, because yo, where you from, man? Where your people from? Yeah, I know. I know Massachusetts. I mean, before that, Ireland. Did you know the Irish were considered the n-words of the english yeah mm, yeah do you speak irish Aaron or whatever you don't know what i'm talking about do you uh-huh let's talk about violence and so i'm gonna drug him for filth see the problem we have is we start our memory with yesterday and think we didn't check somebody by reinforcing the social structure framework as our defense that's why the concept of reparations gets blown out of the way wrongly because we start the wrong place but that's a story for another day what chad williams does in talking about how Du Bois regrets this is map how Du Bois's theory is really about blackness and global white supremacy. Hence the title of his draft manuscript, The Black Man and the Wounded World. The failure of World War I to address the fundamental issues of human beingness in the world and what it succeeded at is ensconcing, reinforcing Hence World War II and then the Korean War, Vietnam and all the desert storm and all these global wars, reinforcing this violent global white supremacist network with the United States now taking its turn in the seat of power. And what Chad Williams does after almost 500, well, no, not including notes, after almost 400 pages in the final chapter, he says, the black man in the wounded world speaks to the, talking about Du Bois's manuscript, speaks to the enduring tension of being black and being American. The quest to relieve the pain of this tension has defined much of the black experience in American history. 
I would make the argument in some ways being American means being black, but not in the way people make it as a triumphal. I'm saying that blackness is the thing that we weren't before we left Africa and it's used as an engine to propel American and sort of expand it globally. What Howard French would say, born in blackness, it would expand into the notion of whiteness in the modern world. Chair Williams goes on and says, Du Bois believed that the double consciousness he prophetically articulated in the souls of black folk and elsewhere could be reconciled in the crucible of war and patriotism. Unfortunately, he was wrong. And as the years passed, he recognized his error. Okay. Yeah, because he left. And Chad Williams writes about that near the end. He goes to Ghana. He's there now. He's working on Encyclopedia Africana with you and Crewman there. He's buried there. Okay. Next line uh, belongs to Chad Williams. Again, fact. Okay, that's fact. He left and said, chin up and fight on, but recognize American Negroes can't win. Okay. I, I, he's he, he born in 1868 during Reconstruction, lived through that period almost a century, so he saw that stuff, was participated in a lot of those fights. You can debate him, you can agree, you can disagree, but one thing you can't displace is he lived it and he narrated it the whole his whole life. So I'm going to trust him on this a little bit more than anybody who's now saying, we found three more documents, and this is what he meant. Nah, I can read what he said. The next line is Professor Williams's. But we should not see him as selfishly naive and believing that, that he and all Black people could be full Americans. Up to his final years, even while facing persecution by the government and branded as an un-American, he refused to completely abandon his country. Wait a minute, damn, I dropped my glasses. Okay, give it your passport. You move to Ghana, but you refuse to, okay. He wrote in his autobiography, this is the one that was published posthumously, I know the United States. This is Du Bois now. It is my country and the land of my fathers. It is still a land of magnificent possibility. It is still the home of noble souls and generous people, but it is selling its birthright. It is betraying its mighty dense destiny. I was born on its soil and educated in its schools. I have served my country to the best of my ability. I have never knowingly broken its laws or unjustly attacked its reputation. At the same time, I have pointed out its injustices and crimes and blamed it, rightly as I believe, for its mistakes. It has given me education and some of its honors for which I am thankful. That's what Du Bois writes near the end of his life, at the end of his, well, drafted at near the end of his life, published after he passed. Chad Williams writes, he, Du Bois, viewed his unflinching criticism of America as the highest form of duty, citizenship, and patriotic sacrifice. Yeah, I'm going to go back and read Du Bois. Hey, what you doing, man? The struggle of African-Americans to hold the nation accountable for its sins while also fighting for its potential endures to this day. And here's where I would say he drove this magnificent car into the ditch. <laughs> Is that what we fighting for? The potential? Let's say that that's true. Let's embrace that. In fact, listen, no, 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 no come here. Let's embrace it. What that potential look like, bro? What does that potential look like? First of all, I'm not saying it's pledge of allegiance. That's my right, right? It's the First Amendment. That's the potential, right? Add the potential, say I'm not never singing it, and ain't standing up for that flag. That flag is a murderous rag. Every star on it got blood in it. That's my right, right? That wouldn't mean to be an American, right? No, no. Say it with your chest, because if you don't. I know that you're scared. You ain't got to be scared. It's more of us than them. We're the global majority. Oh, wait, we ain't thinking global. You're trying to confine this to the four corners of this settler state. Is that what you're doing? You better look around. Why? 
because this birth rate going like this and then the other birth rates going up and you just keep turning in to make an argument with these five people who soon to be four, who soon to be three, who soon to be two. Oh, they got their finger on the trigger. What the hell's going on? Why are you arguing with you? You got to expand your, that's what Du Bois was doing. He didn't say the wounded United States. Come on, bro. I'm not mad at you because I understand it. There are matters of tenure and promotion. There are matters of jobs. There are matters of awards from your master. I mean, there, there are all these kind of things. But when you are a free African, you have a different person. When you're a free human being, you understand those artificial lines are artificial. Human beings drove that. And if you want to prosper in this place that you're in, you have to connect with the people who are all over the world. And you start locally, but you're always thinking expansively. You keep trying to wrap yourself in that little piece of flag. And as I'm walking through this former plantation, I'm thinking to myself, this fragile lie is kept up by the jollies of America. I am not a jolly of America. I'm a jolly of African people in our common humanity. So we're going to tell it, tell it. So Du Bois, writing about his friend Charles Young, and this is in a number of places. It's in the Crisis magazine. He wrote this just after Charles Young made transition. And if you want to read it, you can pull it up a lot of different places. I just pulled one of the many volumes it's in. Uh, this is uh, the volumes that was edited by Nathan Huggins, the selected works of W.B. Du Bois. You can probably get this paperback very cheap. February 1922, Charles Young and May transition in Nigeria. By the way, he was there. We're going to talk about that in a minute. I'm going to read what Du Bois said about his friend. The life of Charles Young was a triumph of tragedy. No one ever knew the truth about the hell he went through at West Point. Prop, you say that uh, Bragg went to West Point. So did Charles Young. Charles Young was the third person of African descent to be graduated from West Point. The fourth person of African descent was Benjamin O. Davis Jr. Almost 50 years later, I think 47 years later. Benjamin O. Davis Jr., the son of Benjamin O. Davis Sr. Davis buried at Arlington, past his grave. Benjamin Davis' daddy was a master sergeant in the Buffalo Soldiers under the command of Charles Young, who raised Benjamin Davis Sr., whose son, Benjamin Davis Jr., became the fourth person to be graduated from West Point of African descent. Charles Young went to West Point because his daddy, Gabriel, this Negro was born in, this Negro was enslaved in Kentucky. Gabriel Young. Gabriel Young and his wife, Armenta Young, enslaved in Kentucky. Charles born in 1864. Only son. Charles Young was born in 1864 and pops and moms was like, we ain't going through slavery no because remember, Kentucky was loyal to the Union. See, this is the mistake people make about Abe Lincoln. Right? Abe Lincoln, Emancipation Proclamation, 1863, said, look, January 1st, 1862, January 1st, 1863, any any state that is in rebellion to the United States, all Africans are thenceforth and forever free. That's beautiful. But guess what? What about Kentucky? What about Delaware? What about Maryland? Jersey, Jersey, you know, slave states. Oh, no, no. Y'all can keep them Negroes. But what? But you, you could have freed the Africans in the states. Well, no, nah, I ain't trying. Look, if freeing them is going to keep the union fine if, if if freeing some of them and enslaving the rest of them fine if enslaving all of them fine i'm trying to preserve the union charles young's parents gabriel and araminta were in kentucky 
And as Abe Lincoln famously said in the early days of the war, in this war, I want God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Young Dan Cameron, the defender of the killers of Breonna Taylor, is running for governor of Kentucky, a black man married to white supremacy in the form of his mentor, Mitch McConnell. Hey, I thought y'all knew where I was going with that, didn't you? No. <laughs> love is love. Let's not get into that. But I didn't tell you what I am going with that when it comes to black women. You didn't defend Rihanna Taylor. You defended her killers, young Dan. Young Dan. Yeah, young Dan. You want to be governor of Kentucky. Momentum of memory. You want to be governor of the state that Charles Young's parents escaped from to get to Ripley, Ohio. And they're buried in the shadow of Ripley, Ohio. Gabriel Young, who after he escaped, spent that last year of the Civil War in the United States Colored Troops serving with distinction. Who told his son, his only son, him and his wife's only son, who grew up in the segregated schools there. And then when he got to high school, the black high school, his classes weren't hard enough. So they finally let Charles Young go to the white school. Charles Young busted out the white school. And then his daddy was like, son, take that test for West Point. What the hell? Young scored like second highest or third highest in the state, which meant he qualified. And when he got to West Point, they hazed it out of him. The first year, the so-called plebe year, there's hazing. And then there's what they did to Charles Young. Du Bois became his friend when they were on faculty at Wilberforce because Charles Young finished at West Point. And what did they do with Negroes in the segregated army? Did y'all know that Arlington National Cemetery was segregated by race until Harry Truman desegregated the military in 1948? Oh, there's a story out there in that yard called Arlington. Mount Washington. Some of these things can't be reconciled. Because some of these bodies ain't the same. Social structure, who are we to other people? Governance, who are we to each other? Now, if you're going to build an America that's different than the one we've lived in, it's going to be an America different than the one we've lived in. If Chad Williams thinks that's what Du Bois was after, then I would encourage him to say, brother, go back and read your own book. Du Bois and Ghana. Chin up and fight on. Now, his concepts are complex. But Charles Young, who was the only one of the two of the, the first three who stayed in the military for his whole life, Charles Young ended up being a professor of military science at Wilberforce from like 1894 to 1898. That's when he met and befriended W.E.B. Nine Du Bois. Because Du Bois, of course, went to Philadelphia, 1899, the Philadelphia Negro, he and Nina and their son Burgard, then Philly. But they overlap and they became very good friends. Because Charles Young, man, this guy, my goodness, Young was a linguist. He was a professor of military science at Wilberforce. He was also a professor of French and mathematics. He knew Latin. And he was an active duty military. So they sent him, he fights in the he fights in Mexico. They sent him to chase Pancho Villa or whatever, Jack, Black Jack Pershing, General Pershing. Pershing nominates Young to be a general back then. Now, this is where it gets hazy, right? Because he's a military man, which means you are the sword of the country. They just passed the damn budget, you know, or kicked it down the road to January 2025 because it's all political document, right? And, and, and one thing they didn't cut was the military spending. Why? Because you done, you done tried to beat up the whole world and now you're scared. 
So you got to keep pouring trillions of dollars into this military budget while people don't have nothing to eat. And you claim that you want to balance the budget. You ain't trying to balance the damn budget. But the military is the, is the thing that they use to invade everybody. And Charles Young was a military man. His father fought for his freedom. And in that hazy moment of reconstruction tells the son, you know what? Why don't you follow? Don't follow my footsteps. Keep going. Keep going. Because it's one thing to be in the damn military in the United States Colored Troops. We had a Major Delaney, Martin Delaney, who we talked about last week. But you know what? You could be, man. You, what you think, Araminta? His mama like, you know what I think about my baby. He's the smartest human being on the planet. Everything he, everything he studies, he masters. So he went to West Point, survived that, graduated, comes to World Force. He's teaching math. He's teaching French. He studies Latin. He, they sent him out chance Pacho Villa. He studies and learns Spanish. He knew Spanish before he went there. Then they sent him to Haiti. He's the first diplomat, really, of African descent with a military background. You could argue Fred Douglas and all this kind of thing. But Charles Young shows up in Haiti. They got him in Haiti. Why? Because the United States is going to invade Haiti. They invaded Haiti in the Dominican Republic. He speaks Spanish. Then he learns Creole because he speaks French. He learns Creole, Haitian Creole. In fact, he writes a damn dictionary of Haitian Creole. The whole time he's reading books, he's always reading and writing. Some of his papers are at the National Museum of Afro-American History and Culture, uh, National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center in Wilberforce. By the way, I didn't mention it while I was there, but I should mention it here since we talked about her early on. An Ar Anna Arnold Hedgeman's papers are at where we were last week. They there were before us in that building. But anyway, story for another day. Charles Young stuff, but Charles Young stuff is all other a lot of other places too. He's got all these letters and all these manuscripts, all these music scores. He would write music in between things he was doing where he was stationed. He ends up in the Philippines. When we talked about Carter G. Woodson being in the Philippines, his frat brother, another Q, right? Woodson was in the Philippines. Young was in the Philippines because America's building its empire of color. Then they send him to Nigeria. I'm sorry. Then they send him to Liberia. This is where the thing is fascinating for me. Because when you understand why he was in Liberia, there's a dissertation that a cat named Tim Rainey wrote. I want to say I know this, brother. That's what I was telling you, Prof. Oh, if y'all know Timothy Rainey, please, you know, connect him. Because I'd love to, for him to come in and talk to us about this. He wrote a dissertation 20 years ago, 2001 at Johns Hopkins. He did his undergrad though at Morgan State called Buffalo Soldiers in Africa. Buffalo Soldiers in Africa, the Liberia Frontier Force and the United States Army, 1912 to 1927. Why are black soldiers in Africa? Because the United States colony in Africa, known as Liberia, we're not saying they have no colonies in Africa. That's a lie. Liberia's one. Y'all sent in formerly enslaved Africans and free so-called free Africans over to Liberia, not to return to Africa, but to basically have a toenail over there. And you created a militia that fought against the Africans who were there. Still to this day, how in a country that you made up and piped Africans who were formerly enslaved in, in the early to mid 19th century, how in 2022 people still tell the difference between American Liberian and Liberians who are there? Why? Because you set up that conflict. This is what y'all do. The violences. Sandy, I understand what you was doing, brother, about the pogroms and stuff, but you got to put this in the larger context of a field of violence. That's how you check it. And anybody saying, look what he did, that tells me you can't be a jolly yet. Maybe you're not trying to be a jolly. You just like to see people fighting white people. I understand the visceral thrill, but at some point we got to get better. As John Clark said, don't get mad, get smart. So what Tim Rainey does, 
who's active duty military. I mean, I, the dissertation is brilliant. What he writes about is how these brothers of African descent interacted, these military men, these Buffalo soldiers, 9th, 10th Cavalry, this kind of thing, interacted in Liberia with indigenous Liberians because their jobs go up there and help the Liberians create a military. But their interaction with them, Tim Rainey writes, is, is similar to the white army people who invade. Charles Young is on the horns of the dilemma, though, because Charles Young is a race man. He's very interested in African history. He's very interested in African people. He's very interested in the possibilities of global Africana. He wouldn't have called it any of that. But what he did say was, while he was over there, I saw this Marcus Garvey movement. This is the second time he went. We'll get to the second time in a minute. He says, I see the possibilities of this Garvey movement. And I think it could be really something. Because remember, Garvey and them was like, we're going to come to Liberia. We'll get in millions of dollars. We're going to build and establish here. Yeah, I know y'all looking at me crazy because I'm talking about I'm the president of the of Africa. And I said, but we're going to. And Charles Young is like, this could work. He says, but then I saw that they didn't have the money. And what Charles Young writes is, you need the money to fight these white boys. Because they got the money. And I don't see how you're going to be able to pull this off without the resources i thought y'all may have had the resources he's writing the voice about this course the voice ends up on the wrong side of the garden movement on that too but charles young is different remember this is a guy trained as a killer who killed for a living this is a man who the military would narrate as a great american hero happens to be black first black superintendent of the national park service that's true because they sent the knife and jeff calvary out to carve out pathways and manage what becomes sequoia national park so charles young goes out there and does that charles young i mean but but that's not that's not that's Charles Young that's Charles, how Charles Young shows up in the social structure in the governance formation. Charles Young is looking very different. Yes, he was an army man, but he was also a race man, which keeps raising his questions. I'm walking through Arlington on Thursday, and I'm looking at the grave of Joe Lewis with maybe forty white kids and a couple of little spots of black kids. One of whom saw my shirt and said, I like your shirt. And I was like, yeah, I see you governance in this sea. Y'all on y'all class trip. I didn't even ask her where she was from. Three or four black kids. I'm in the, I'm coming through the screening. I'm sitting there getting my thoughts together, reflecting on where I am. I'm in the bookstore. I'm looking for Charles Young's book. It's not in there. I'm looking for the book on section 27 of Arlington National Cemetery. It's not in there. I'm looking for the book on the Freedman Cemetery that is in um, Alexandria, where the United States Colored Troops were once buried, and they dug them up and put them in the military cemetery in Arlington. It's not in there. And so I asked the brother, where, you know, wait, oh, we have them from time to time. Yeah, but I see all these damn books about John F. Kennedy, and then I see Thurgood Marshall. Oh, that's great, Colin Powell. Where the Charles Young book? I've seen the Charles Young book in here. Y'all should have that in constant rotation. And there's a whole section in this cemetery. You know, it used to be a plantation. Where the book on that? I ain't mad at y'all, though. Because I know y'all didn't pick the stock. As I'm coming out, I sit on the, I sit on one of the little benches and I'm watching people. I'm all oh, this flood of children. It's beautiful to see these children from all over the country because they come into the national shrine. Again, a jolly, you're making the memory of this country. This is the blood of the country. This is a ritual place, right? But as I'm watching it, I'm seeing these black kids sprinkled out, not a whole lot of them. And four or five of those children, as I'm sitting there. Thank you. I give him a little fist, the black power fist. Why? Because I don't even know why you said that, but I know what I would like to th think about why you said that. Because it's a governance thing. 
I know these are your friends. They're very great. But you said that because you also exist in the governance formation. I understand. I'm glad I wore that shirt today. So thanks. Uh, thanks, Dunbar. So let me finish reading what Du Bois wrote about his friend. And then we'll, we'll wind up. The life of Charles Young. Let me see what time it is here. because I don't want... Okay, good. The life of Charles Young was a triumph of tragedy. No one ever knew the truth about the hell he went through at West Point. He seldom even mentioned it. The pain was too great. Few knew what faced him always in his army life. It was not enough for him to do well. He must always do better. And so much and so conspicuously better as to disarm the scoundrels that ever trailed him. He lived in the army surrounded by insult and intrigue, and yet he set his teeth and kept his soul serene and triumphed. One more editorial. As we talked about when we read Souls of Black Folk, every generation defines literacy according to the shape and context of the social structure it lives in. But I promise you there is something to be gained from reading writing like this. Sitting outside the hotel in Dayton Sunday morning, and I heard the young brother who was the valet in between getting people's cars and working, hardworking brother. I heard him tell an elder sister, he's from South Carolina. But in between, he was recording, I guess, a hip-hop song he was creating in his uh, into his phone. And all I heard was, when I read like this, I say, I would love to sit side by side with this brother and say, read this paragraph. Let's chew through this language. I suspect it would have something, an impact on the, because that's baby talk. I'm much more worried about the shadow man on books. You banning books, but what about them ones that's still up there? You didn't read them. That's the shadow ban. Let's continue. Du Bois writes, he was one of the few men I know who literally turned the other cheek with Jesus Christ. He was laughed at for it, and his own people chided him bitterly, yet he persisted. When a white Southern pygmy at West Point protested at taking food from a dish passed first to Young, Young passed it to him first and afterward to himself. When officers of inferior rank refused to salute a quote N-word, he saluted them. Seldom did he lose his temper, seldom complained. With his own people, he was always the genial, hearty, half-boyish friend. He kissed the girls. He slapped the boys on the back, threw his arms about his friends, scattered his money in charity. Only now and then behind the veil did his nearest comrades see the hurt and pain graven on his heart. And when it appeared, he promptly drowned it in his music, his beloved music which always poured from his quick, nervous fingers to caress and bathe his soul. Steadily, unswervingly, he did his duty, and duty to him, as to few modern men, was spelled in capitals. It was his lodestar, his soul, and neither force nor reason swerved him from it. His second going to Africa, after a terrible attack of Blackwater fever, was suicide. He knew it. His wife knew it. His friends 
knew it. He had been sent to Africa because the army considered his blood pressure too high to let him go to Europe. They sent him there to die. They sent him there because he was one of the very best officers in the service. And if he had gone to Europe, he could not have been denied the stars of a general. They could not stand a black American general. Therefore, they sent him to the fever coast of Africa. They ordered him to make roads back in the haunted jungle. He knew what they wanted and intended. He could have escaped it by accepting his retirement from active service, refusing his call to active duty, and then he could have lounged and lived at leisure on his retirement pay. But Africa needed him. He did not yell and collect money and advertise great schemes and parade in crimson. He just went quietly, ignoring appeal and protest. Finally, Du Bois writes, he is dead. But the heart of a great black race the ancient of days, the undying and eternal, rises and salutes his shining memory. Well done, Charles Young, soldier and man, an unswerving friend. Charles Young, on the eve of World War I, looked forward to the war, the great war for democracy, which Du Bois realized at the end was a failure for black people and a victory for white supremacy. Hence the manuscript, The Black Man in the Wounded World. Charles Young was retired by the United States government, United States Army, United States military under the auspices of the president of the United States, the commander in chief, Woodrow Racist Wilson. As Chad Williams brilliantly documents, the latest in a line of many to document, beginning with Du Bois and others. Charles Young, by the way, wrote books. He wrote a whole book on the, on the morals and 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 values of the, the armies of nations. I got a, a photocopy of it around here. It's in storage, I'm sure, because I couldn't find my Charles Young, uh, that book. But at any rate, y'all can look it up. Somebody put it in the chat. I mean, I'm about to wind this up in a couple of minutes anyway. They, they retired him because as, as, as Chad Williams, Professor Williams documents, United States senators, Louisiana, they, they went to Wilson like, uh-uh, we ain't taking orders. I don't want my boys taking orders from black men. You got to retire this boy. Because if, if this boy going to World War II on active duty, he's going to be a general. Do you understand? Battlefield promotions. Charles, y'all about to be a general, y'all. We got to stop that. So Woodrow Wilson being the, he is. That was a simulation of a crack. I'm trying to be mindful. They retire him. They retire him. And as I talked about last week, uh, and Chad Williams writes about this, and in fact, where's the Gabriel Young's book? No, uh, David Kilroy. Kil Kilroy's book. David Kilroy writes about this. It's very interesting. Um, let me see if I can find it quickly because I like being able to quote these kind of things. And we're going to do a whole lot more of this because um, mm, I won't be able to find it quickly because I don't mark in these books. So uh, here we go. The glass ceiling. It's in the chapter on the glass ceiling. If I can find it quickly because Young keeps writing. They give him a physical and they give him an exam to promote him to colonel in, in May 1917. And they promote him to colonel, but then they retire him before the end of the war because they don't want him to be a uh, promoted to general in the war. So let me see here. 
Columbus. He's lobbying the whole time. Everybody's writing. Du Bois is writing. Uh, uh, Oswald Garrison Villard, Spingarn and them. Everybody is trying to get the NBACP. And he rides his horse. Here we go. Here we go. In June 1918, war is almost over. With his appeals exhausted and the walls closing in around him, Young decided on one last desperate effort, desperate effort to return to service, secure a return to service. As soon as the school year was over, the 54-year-old retired colonel prepared to undertake a grueling 497-mile horseback ride to Washington, D.C. to rid myself of this case and to show the Secretary of War that I am physically fit. He's a professor at Wilberforce. They didn't told him your blood pressure's messed up. Now you physically, you fit as hell. So we're gonna let you be a colonel. Wait a minute, hold on. You white boy say you got to be retired. You retired, man. We can't send you nowhere. You can't send you to Europe. Remember, Du Bois said you can't go to Europe to fight, man. But they sent him to Africa later. Watch this. He says, sending one of his favorite horses, Dolly, ahead on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, Young saddled his huge black Kentucky bred mare, Blacksmith. See, here's the problem. Somebody gonna make a Charles Young movie and mess it up. It's going to be some white bureaucrat in Washington who wanted to reinstate him, who's going to have a tear rolling down his cheek as he writes denied. It's going to be the white point of entry. Don't mess up, Charles. In fact, don't even make no move. See, there's a problem. Don't make no move about Charles Young. You're going to mess it up. We're going to make a movie about Charles Young, okay? Young saddled his huge black Kentucky bred mare, Blacksmith. You can't make this up and set off for the nation's capital from his home in Wilberforce. His non-stop, unassisted ride. I know what y'all was thinking. He stopped at the Motel 6 every three miles, right? His non-stop, unassisted ride. I'm worried about going up the hill to see him, and I'm 58 years old. He's 54 years old, man, got on a black horse named Blacksmith and rode it. He says his, his non-stop, unassisted ride took him through town and Hamlet by stream and river over the Appalachians through Athens, Parkersburg, Clarksburg, Winchester, and on to Washington, walking on foot 15 minutes in each hour to rest his horse. <laughs> Professor Hunter, <laughs> you can't do nothing but laugh, can you? This is not a comic book. This ain't Enter the Spider-Verse. This, this a... Young crossed the M Street Bridge into Georgetown 16 days from leaving his house. This man fasted in a damn Greyhound bus. He had averaged 31 miles per day with only one rest day during the whole ride. Watch this, finally. An agreeably surprised black public greeted his arrival in Washington in June 22 with enthusiasm and the black press reported that after days in the saddle, the, gym, the colonel looks fit for service at the front. Tea by Charles Young. After the war, they still didn't unretire him, but guess what? War's over. Now they unretire him and send him to Liberia. The hmm. boy said they sent him to die. Charles Young went to Liberia. Again, Tim Rainey's dissertation, which focuses on Charles Young and Ben Davis. Because remember, Ben Davis was master sergeant under Charles Young. Ben Davis' son ends up being the next guy to graduate from West Point. There ain't none of this hype in the military. I could give a damn about the military. My daddy was a veteran. Those little white tombstones, like the one Mega Evers buried in, my daddy got one just like it. My mother and father rest under one of them tombstones. And we was fighting with the man right up until, you know, so what, you want to cross on the tombstone? I'm saying, I really want to onk on the tombstone. Well, they, well, my dad was not my daddy's life. So put that cross on there. My daddy was a deacon in the Baptist church. I'm well aware of ways of knowing are different. You understand? But, but, but you need to understand 
that I know this is a military cemetery. I've been in many military cemeteries. I've probably been in more than you have, sir. But I know under them little white pill boxes, there's a lot of us under them. And so um, Rainey writes about the fact that you sent these guys over here to expand your foreign policy. That's why they called Charles Young a young uh, early diplomat. But Charles Young is there representing the U.S. Army, but he's also representing himself. So when they sent him over there, he got sick and made transition in 1922 because he is sent to Lagos. He's sent to Nigeria, to the British protectorate on U.S. business. But he writes back to Du Bois. He had about 300 books he had shipped to Africa. He lost 200 of them. He mad about that. He writing back to Ada like, where my shit at? But Ada, by the way, his wife, she from the West Coast, from the Oakland Bay Area, also very deeply uh, uh, involved with languages, um, music. They shared a great love for literature. Just an incredible couple. Lived the rest of her life in Wilberforce. Took care of her mother-in-law, Armenta, till she made transition. Armenta, by the way, remarried after her husband charles young's father made transition uh she is buried near where charles young and ada young's children are buried she's in ohio as well she chose to be buried with her first husband uh gabriel so they're buried under this huge white marker with gabriel young and with armenta young and uh, between them you got all gabriel young's military exploits united states colored troops i mean my goodness these are africans you see, see, they were loyal Americans. Y'all stop reading that bullshit back into history. These are Africans who fought their way out of enslavement. Give me a gun and I'll give a damn. You're an American. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I'm getting ready to kill these practices. Why? Because remember Fort Pillow? Remember Fort Wagner? And Young writes about that. Charles Young did not write a play on George Washington. Charles Brown, Young said, I'm going to write a play about John Brown because I finished this one on Toussaint L'Overture. Y'all better look at Charles Young. Why y'all acting like American hero? Don't, don't, don't do that, man. Or do it. That's fine. But don't claim to be a jolly, even a griot. You need to be something else. So when they sent Charles Young, he said, well, I go to Nigeria. Why? Because I'm trying to get to Kano. Kano, the ancient walled city of Kano. About 500-mile road trip from Lagos. All Nigerians, y'all know what that is. Northern Nigeria. Why does Charles Young want to go to Kano? He been telling Du Bois, I want to write a history of African civilizations. Huh? But you're an American army man. No, I am a race man. In fact, Du Bois, because Du Bois knew Charles Young. That's why he was so torp about what happened to Charles Young. Du Bois is like, no, this man saw the black world as connected. And he lived his life that way. Anywhere he went around black people, he immersed with black. Y'all send me to Haiti because y'all want to invade Haiti in 1915. Y'all was there from 15 to 41. I'll go down there, but I'm going to learn Creole. Governance. Who are we to each other? Ways of knowing. You think Charles Young wasn't learning about Vodun too on the side? Y'all better pay attention. This brother was brilliant. The white boys are like, ah, he's a good soldier, but he, yeah. Which one of you white boys, in terms of mediocrity, prof, as you mentioned, which one of you white boys got a half dozen languages in command, can go teach all of them at the, the black school? Because you only want the, the brothers to speak at the white. You got three dudes came out of Morehouse, so you want them teaching Wilberforce and then go off to active duty. When uh, they set up the camp, because they say you should have black officers in World War I, 1917, Newton Baker, Secretary of War, uh, Emmett Scott, who wrote a history of the war. You know, he's at Howard after Dubois, uh, after Booker T. Washington dies in 1915. They're there. They set up a camp. Two of the founders of Omega Psi Phi were in the United States Army. One of the reasons they invite Charles Young to become an honorary member of Omega Psi Phi is because you had men who were technically lower ranking than Colonel Charles Young who were in the military. Charles Young was a hero to these young cats. 
and they put their whole lives on the line. Then they come back to the United States and these hillbillies, the grandparents of the Make America Great crowd, trying to lynch them in their uniforms because they don't America. You can have this damn American flag and you can get this gun too, baby. Come get it. In other words, the Red Summer was not just black people getting killed. Cop narrate, stop now. In fact, oh man, this black woman wrote to the crisis after Du Bois is in there talking about the Red Summer, how they came for black people in Washington, D.C., and black people gave it back to them. In fact, my man, I was looking around for Gerald's new book. Gerald Horn just published a new book called Revolting Capital, The History of Race in Washington, D.C. Brilliant book. And when they are fighting in Washington, D.C., when these white boys want to kill somebody, he said, come on, let's dance. What you going to do? A black woman writes the, mm -mm -mm. wait a minute, hold on. Hold on. I might be able to find it if I got about 15 seconds. I think I, I don't know. If I can't, I'm going to be kind of let me see. Crisis Magazine 110, 113, because I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want y'all to think the First World War. Here we go. More than a million. Woodrow Wilson, white boy. Expand. Black Americans. Booker T. Washington. Uh, the Klan, Black Militancy, the Klan marched in Washington, D.C., Black Self-Determination. Here we go. UNIA, African Blood Brotherhood. Oh, man, I'm not going to be able to find it. That's too bad. There was a Black woman who wrote a letter to the crisis. Let me see if I can see it under Red Summer. See, I don't like to write in my books. Booker T. Washington died in 19. Give me a second here. Um I'm reading, I'm looking in Black Movements in America, Cedric Robinson's book, where Du Bois is writing about how they fought back. Let me see the Klan movement. Give me a second here. Oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. Then, of course, came the Red Summer, the right racist pogroms that hit Chicago, Washington, D.C., and 23 other American cities. cities. The violence was disturbing, but now the anxiety was not confined to the Black victims. Blacks had fought back. One Southern colored woman, quote unquote, wrote the crisis in November 1915. This is what the sister writes. Science and technology, newspapers. That's science and technology. Ways of knowing. What ways of understanding and interpreting the world have we created? Governance. Who are we to each other? These are all in play. This is what the sister writes. The Washington riot gave me the thrill that comes once in a lifetime. I read between the lines of our morning paper that at least our men had stood like men, struck back. We're no longer dumb, driven cattle. Camp County Cullen, who wrote uh, that poem for Charles Young, also wrote, if we must die, let us nobly die. The sister finally writes, when I could no longer read for my streaming tears, I stood up alone in my room, held both hands high over my head. Y'all know black women get, my mama used to do this when she started getting happy. I, <laughs> I stood up alone in my room, held both hands high over my head and exclaimed aloud, oh, I thank God. Thank God. Let's lynch this nigga. Let's dance. Oh, I thank God. <laughs> thank God. You see this boy that got killed this week? The shop owner decided, oh, what you doing? Get out here and shot him. Brought up memories of Latasha Harlins out there in the West Coast. They convicted that Korean lady. They shot, they killed her, shot in the back of the head. And the white woman judge was like, I gave you for community service and probation. Yeah, uh-huh. We kick in the door waving 4-4. The black lady is like, oh, I thank God. Finally, what the hell? Is this just a history of ass whoopings? Mm -hmm. The red summer they kill No, we fought back. Y'all stop listening to these people who are not narrating our memory. We don't get to move in the moment. Our, our history is history of ass whoopings. 
No, you you reject those people. We fought back. Charles Young says, I'm going to write a history of African civilizations. So he goes to Kano, and that's where he gets sick. He wasn't in the best of health, but he'd have been all right. Du Bois said he should have, he could have retired, but he, duty is what called him. His duty wasn't just to the country. His duty was to us. And so Charles Young makes transition. His his wife, Ada, 16 years younger than him. Uh, she They adopted a, a son, Reginald Quata. Um, as I said, uh, he never makes it back to the United States alive. His his mother remarried William Lowry. I think it was 1910. Um but Ada makes transition in 1953. She never quite recovers. The children are fascinating. Charles Young Jr. Well, he's not Charles Young Jr. His name is Charles Noel Young. Noel? That's interesting. Prof, and we're about to wind up in a second. Why would they name a child Noel? What day do you think he was born? Christmas. 1906, Christmas Day. Nicknamed Tontine. <laughs> <laughs> His daddy then then his daddy got state then his guy daddy got sent to Haiti, so Tantai and his mom Ada go live in Haiti. He lived in Haiti. Then he lived in the Philippines. That's when his sister was born, Marie, Marie Amelia. They call her Kiki. She was born in 1909. She was born in the Philippines. The two black children and y'all know any of y'all military brat kids y'all move around. Haiti, Tantai was born, Kiki, she was born in the Philippines, Tantai with them. So they move, they go around, they end up uh, in Wyoming for a while, which is interesting. Uh, Wilberforce, then they back to Wilberforce at the house. Uh, then they moved to Liberia. Remember the first time when Charles Young went to Liberia, and then they are school-aged, they went to get education in Belgium and France. Now, when Charles Young passes, now they ain't got no money. Du Bois, the whole black community, and basically everybody fighting the damn United States Army because they were going to give her a widow's pension. They say, you need to give her a full pension. Y'all sent this man out to die. They agreed to raise it a little bit, but she never got no money money. So Ada had to struggle. They had a little bit of land and Wilforce for the farm. She struggled one way or the other for the rest of her life. Du Bois was furious. This is, I mean, she lived in 1953, y'all. So when you go to, 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 to the cemetery, you see... Charles Young makes transition in 22. She passes in 53. The young, and the, Her children are buried. We just went there. You know, I was standing there with Kathy Adams, Dr. Adams. We were standing there last week in, in the cemetery of Massey's Creek. There are a series of hedges. And between the hedges, you see Charles and you see Marie. The children are there. But they're not buried there because they died early. They're buried there because when they came back to the United States, Du Bois said you got to bring them back from Europe. They can't continue to study in Europe. Charles grows up, gets a master's from... Ohio State University in agriculture and languages because he wanted to work the land. Self-determination. Very interesting, Charles Young. And then he taught at Central State University. He made transition. He was 60 years old, 1967. Um, uh, Marie, Amelia, she got married where uh, she had a child. She made transition in 1970. She was born in the Philippines, as I said. She got her bachelor's degree in, in Ohio at Wittenberg University. Some of y'all know where Wittenberg is. And got her master's here in D.C., a Catholic. Interestingly enough, she was a professor of French and music, taught for many years at Wilberforce until her transition, sudden transition in 1970. But she started her career not at Wilberforce, but at Jackson State. When I saw that, I said, let me look. So I went and pulled my history. I got it right here somewhere. History of Jackson State. She's mentioned one time, uh, 1940-41, she's hired as a professor at Jackson State. I'm not quite sure how long she stayed. So those of you down there in, uh, at Jackson State, the I love, Y'all look up, because in the history of Jackson State, 
she is narrated as Marie Y. Ware. So if you don't know the why is for Young, you wouldn't know that Charles Young's uh, daughter, Charles Ada Young's daughter, was a professor at Jackson State. Um, and of course, they're, 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 they're buried there in, in Wilberforce. So I'm going to end with this. When we were all together Wednesday with Professor Black, Bob Omotosho, and he was reading Black on Black and everybody was there. I got out the train. I got on train here and I drove, went, rode through D.C. and then got out at Anacostia. Potentially the blackest stop on the D.C. Metro. I'm coming up out the train and I'm hearing sirens. I get up to the top and they have closed off one of the exits. It's about eight police cars, the fire trucks. Black people just walking around like nothing. And I'm seeing all these cops walking around and they running, walking around, they chasing somebody there. And I walked a short couple of blocks up Martin Luther King Avenue, past the big chair to bus boys and poets to go in to see my brother. And as I'm coming in, I'm seeing Nubians. It's a beautiful thing. car. Hey, what's going on? Y'all over there? We can't get in. Uh, I can get in now. But I mean, I'm going to stand in the corner if I have to. It was hot as hell, but that's a beautiful thing. I like the heat. I wore a long sleeve shirt to Arlington. 85 years. Anyway, but the point is this. <laughs> when in that experience, I thought about who we are to each other. And so as we kind of get into the summer now, perhaps we can spend a block of time this summer with some differently imagined weeks and pre-recorded stuff. I mean, I want to think of, maybe think about summer school. I was thinking about summer school a lot walking around at Arlington. What would summer school look like? Maybe a little bit more like slowing down and rethinking, revisiting some of the things we've talked about. Some intellectual CSIs, I like to call it crime scene investigations, because that's what Arlington National Cemetery is. It's a crime scene. That's why I used to tell my nephew when we went out there, he's like, yeah, man, this is a crime scene. We're going to go out to the crime scene. And my girl, Shanice Thompson, Professor Thompson now, when she was a park ranger out there, uh, you know, the park rangers, the United States Park Service, I have to, you know, mention them and thank them. Uh, there are a number of people who, you know, I, I could thank, but I want to mention, um, I thought I, yeah, from last week, um, Angela Stewart, her husband, Robert, Angela Stewart is one of the sisters who keeps watch at the Paul Lawrence Dunbar House, Park Ranger National Park Service. Thank you, Angela, for spending time with us last week and to walk us and narrate us through. She also was the person who coordinated the 100th anniversary of Paul Lawrence Dunbar's birth. Um, and just a remarkable memory keeper, a jolly. Her husband, Robert, has been reassigned. He was over the Charles Young House, which is now the Charles Young national buffalo soldiers monument uh it's being redone there in wilberforce that's where charles young and ada young were her and her mother-in-law his mother armenta their children lived there charles and then uh, charles noel and of course amelia before she got married uh, young where um young's home as it was called it is now the buffalo soldiers national monument uh brother robert was there he's now at fort mchenry that's what angela said told us last saturday so i gotta go up the road to see him in baltimore and if y'all go, go by Fort McHenry National Monument, understand there's a brother there, Robert Stewart, good brother. Before the Stewarts were in Wilberforce and Robert was over the uh, the, the the young home, uh, was our sister, our dear sister, um, Kennard, Dr. Joy Kennard. Joy Kennard is now 
the National Park Service Ranger in charge of the Selma to Montgomery route and also Tuskegee. Uh, her father, John Kennard, was the founder of the first Black Museum in the Smithsonian, which still exists, the Anacostia Neighborhood Community Museum, which is why when I said I came out to uh, the ground of the metro at Anacostia, as I bring it back to a close, it's the Blackest Stop. It's right up the street from Frederick Douglass's house. It's in the heart of Southeast Anacostia. And as I was walking there, I was thinking who we are to each other is very different than who we are to the social structure. And for every foray into attempting to make this place something other than what it is, which is aspirational, and I embrace as an aspiration of our common humanity, we must never forget that if we're going to cite facts, some of these things are going to be irreconcilable. We built this country. So you want to be part of the settler enterprise? If not, you better speak up because these people will take your memories and make them their memories. And if that happens, then you can never build the kind of society you want to be in because you've still allowed that violence, that settler violence, that anti-human violence to be part of your story too. What are your objectives? You talk about reparations? The first step in repair is self-repair. And you cannot, you cannot repair by holding on to that lie. Mm. See? Well, I'm going to stop with, there he is, there he is, Prof. I mean, you know what? I, I want to say this very quickly. Y'all go y'all go do this research for yourself. Go find a picture. There's one picture I've seen of Charles Young's mother. She is beautiful. She is so beautiful. I mean, like this ebony color, you know, his father. There's one picture of him in his uniform. He got his little medal on, you know, United States color troops. I swear that boy looked like her, his mother. She's got that same intense stare. That brother right there, he could have been in the army of the Egyptians. He, he, got, he got that I'll put you wood energy. And every just about oh, every no question. He got, he's standing akimbo, right? Like, like I wish you would. And I wish you would. <laughs> as you were talking about him, I was thinking what it must be like to be born in the 1860s. Because this is the, the journey that I take every day that I get to sit in community with you. It's like, what would I have been in the 1860s? He was born 1864. What would that have been to be in an army where you you know the the assault, verbal, physical? You talking about going to West Point? This man went to the the kind of determination that it would take. I think about that with W. B. Du Bois to actually go through college and then have to start all over again to go to Harvard to prove a point, not to yourself. That's right. To let them know in that at every turn. As that baton gets passed, you know, you and I sit on the shoulders of these folk that that took the L's, but didn't, kept going, you know, got yes. to the other side. We don't have nothing to complain about. Nothing, nothing. But we have everything to remember. Right? Yes. That's a beautiful picture. I mean, like you say, now, when people do the right thing, in other words, they promoted this man to Brigadier General. If they have 50 stars that can go on a general's shoulders, he should have had all 50. And now you've given his descendant a flag with one star. Let me, let me just be very clear about this. These people in this social structure are not doing these things to honor these people. They're doing it to splay Lysol on their lie. If you was going to make Charles Young a general, it should have been when Black Jack Pershing said make him a general. You wait a hundred years. <laughs> See, we're finally correcting a wrong. You can't correct a wrong. Is he alive? Du Bois, see, you sent this man to Africa to die, and he went. Why? Because he had a duty to Africa. Y'all don't know this man, but if you look at him, every black person know who that man is right there. That is the weary face of anybody who has ever seen an elder come home from work. Mm -hmm. That is the work. I'm tired, but I am un 
defeated. People say, oh, he rode his horse from Wilberforce to Washington, D.C. No, 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 no. When you get into the details, you understand the only break he took was so that the horse could get a break. Do you understand that? This man horse was named Blacksmith. He lived in the world. You look him in the face, you're right. Not only do we stand on his shoulders, we owe him a duty. Why? Because he had parents and they had parents and they had parents. And watch this. They had parents. 1619, you start in 1619 B.C.? Why are you starting this story with that damn boat? This man's determination was born in the spirit of the blood that commingled for the first human that walked the earth. And he spent his life trying to get back that story. He died in Nigeria because he went to Kano, because he went to Kano to, to work on his book. Why is he there? Is that an American? No, the Americans sent me to Lagos. I'm going to Kano because I want to read. I want to, I want to repair. I want us to know who we are. Charles Young said, I see what the Garvey movement was trying to do, but they're going to need money to be these white boys. You know how you know that? Because I know these boys better than anybody. I'm the tip of the spear. They, I done chased Pancho Villa. I was down there when they was invading Haiti. I went to damn Philippines when they had them in them jacked up schools trying to teach them English. And Carter Woodson was like, you need to learn your own history. Du Bois was my man. We were sitting in Wilberforce when Du Bois sent a copy of Blackwater. He said, thank you for sending me this copy of your book because I am its father. That was the joke. He said, we used to sit and talk about this stuff. And so when he died, W. Du Bois, went, du, Bois man, du Bois cut up so bad in New York at the ceremony that the white boy from the army came up and tried to offer rebuttal and then apologized to Ada for, I'm sorry, I felt like I had to say something. Because Du Bois was like, no, nah, I'm here. Y'all not going to talk. When Charles Young's body made it to Washington, D.C., the brothers came and got him, took him to Arlington Cemetery. 5,000 people showed up at the funeral and the black schools of Washington took the day off as a holiday. And for years after that, this man's, this man's birthday, the day of that ritual were holidays. And here we are in 2021. And if you say the name Charles Young to 10 black people, 10 of them are going to be like, who are you talking about? This is what we do every Saturday, Professor Hunter. We're going to enter some summer school, do some work. But yeah. I, you, you put the right picture, though. This is him. <laughs> yeah. And then we got to get into two years, uh, 2023, because I know we are still stuck in some some other places. You said 22 in 2021. Um, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. No, no, that's all right, because we did lose two years. So I feel like our ages, nothing happened for two years. So mm. claim all of that. Woo. Claim it all. I love yeah. you. I love you, too. I'll see you in the Nubian streets, y'all. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you, Monday, office hours tomorrow. Maroon's Medicine Chest, we just added a mental health uh, component as well. Dr. Narisa is joining us through an African lens, dealing uh -huh. with our mental health, which I love. You know, we talk about the repair. Yes. Uh, starts with us. So yes. we're going to help oh, oh. Yes, I, I should mention. I should mention one transition this week. This sister, filmmaker, first black woman documentarian. Some people narrate her as that. She was definitely the first black woman who uh, was a part of the Camera Women's Union. Uh, that is, of course, the great Jesse Maple. She made transition this week. This is one of her two biographies called "The Maple Crew." Jesse Maple. Y'all look up Jesse Maple because this is a name we don't hear. We start talking about Hollywood. We start talking about network television. We start talking about camp. This is a sister who was behind the camera and also a documentarian, a filmmaker. She made transitions. So I want to lift that sister up. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the genealogy. You know, sometimes people get frustrated because we're not used to sitting and hearing. Mm. People don't utter a name without then telling us who who begat them. Oh, and those of you who love your Bible, you, there's like a whole damn chapter. Uh, on begats. That's so right. Let's, you know, let's appreciate because none of us got here by ourselves. So no, that's no. the people that 
birth the people that we're talking about, I think is super powerful. And it also gives us breadcrumbs to, to go yeah. follow. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so thank you for that. Y'all be safe and yes. uh, love you. Love you too. All right, Nubians. See y'all.